Matthew Risling, Paxton Francis, thank you for joining me for the 100th episode of Rank and Review. What do we call it? Centennial episode? <laughs> um, and uh, we're going to talk about the Coen brothers. Um, and we're going to celebrate 100 episodes of Rank and Review. Um, I think I'm in pretty friendly company here, but would either of you loudly bulk if I were to say that the Coen brothers are probably the greatest living filmmakers that we have right now? Uh, they certainly uh, are overrepresented in my top five Desert Island movies. There's, right. They've got two of the slots there. Is Mel Brooks still alive? He is. Then no, sorry. <laughs> Mel Brooks still wins. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but that's well, pretty good. Was, no, I'm with you. I identify them as my favorite filmmakers when I talk to people about them generally. There's people you can have in that conversation. I guess Martin Scorsese would have to be in that conversation too. But like... For me, as far as they're consistent, the worst Coen Brothers movie, to me, is still a very solid movie. It's just disappointing to me that it's only very solid instead of fucking excellent. Like, mm -hmm. that's the criteria by which I judge Unfortunately, the Coen I, Brothers. I don't think we'll be talking about that movie today. No, no. no. Uh, we're going to look at the first <laughs> six. 
of the Coen Brothers films in this episode. In this special 100th episode, thank you very much for uh, inviting myself and I guess Matt too. <laughs> Matt's yeah, Skyping in. Can everyone hear him okay? Champions. Fun fact. I took the championship from Matt when I won it. Was that the last time I yeah, was on? On Star Trek, he took your championship and recently he has been dethroned. In a not yet aired episode, no, right? No, it's, it's, it's out has there. It, it's has out it gone? Yeah, it's out. You're done. Yeah. You're, <laughs> done. You're, yesterday's You're yesterday's It takes news. a little bit of pressure off of tonight, which might make it less fun for the audience, but more fun for, uh, for us. <laughs> Matt and I don't have to sweat it. Fun fact, when I first started collecting movies, this would be 1991, I, bought, I went to Tramps. They were having a big VHS sale, and I bought two movies, Miller's Crossing and Tremors. This is the first two movies I bought in my collection. And I think those are pretty solid. <laughs> nice place yeah, to Yeah, I think you did a good job. <laughs> I kind of want to see them bring both IPs back and cross worlds. <laughs> yes. I want to see Tom from Miller's Crossing riding one of the tremors. Oh, he's chasing his hat when all of a sudden he's seized by a graboid. He's munched by a yeah. graboid. <clears throat> and then the graboid beats him up for a little bit. Knocks his hat off. <laughs> Uh, oh, the Cohen movies that should be. There's a spinoff on The Big Lebowski coming out. Did you hear about this, Matthew? No, I didn't. John Turturro's directing it. It's basically like a remake of some 70s French farce. Yes. <laughs> but the main character is Jesus Quintana from The Big Lebowski. The original <laughs> French film is a very rapey farce. Uh, I think involving underage sex, so we might be getting a glimpse into why so he had to, yeah, yeah, right? so French, French sex. Yeah. So you know, it might be a glimpse into why he had to go house to house telling everyone he was a pederast. I'm not sure. Um, the we'll see. The, the, it's in the camp. The cult worship of the Coens goes in all sorts of directions too. They have a Fargo TV series, which. Against all odds, I'm actually quite happy with. I've only seen the, yeah, the first two seasons. I thought it seasons. was fantastic. I still haven't watched season two. Yeah, I've seen the first two seasons, and I really like it. I haven't seen season three yet, but like it, it, like I was impressed. Like I was prepared to not like it, and I really liked it. Um, yeah, yeah, I went too. in shields up into that show, and I liked it anyway. Yeah. I was thinking, like, no, why are you doing this? This isn't Coen Brothers. But I, it turned out to quite like it. Well, it sort of speaks to like it, how big the influence of the Coens are. I mean, it's obvious that the Coen brothers aren't making the Fargo TV show, but it's very Coen-esque. It's very, you know, it's very Coen. And mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting that their language is starting to be picked up by a younger generation of filmmakers. Mm -hmm. I, I think that their, their influence is going to be felt for a long time, for generations. Which Gabriel Byrne, I just watched an interview with him the other day, actually, in preparation for this podcast, yeah. uh, predicted way back when he was doing press tour for Miller's Crossing right. that they would have imitators for decades. So, yeah. interesting. Uh, I've heard them, though, speak unenthusiastically on the subject of the television spinoff. Yeah. The Coen brothers have not been... They said, uh, well, it's probably not the show that we would make, even though they executive produce it and get a check every month, I'm sure. <laughs> they weren't disparaging actually, of it. They just weren't kind. Right. Um, I, I mean, I think the best of their work is way better than uh, the Fargo TV show. For but I sure. think the Fargo TV show is better than some of their, what I would say, are their worst, worst movies. Right. Hmm. 
um, things that you're going to encounter in the Coen Brothers movies, and we can flag them. We will talk about them as we go through, but common themes. You have narration, you have dream sequences, you have specific uh, attention to character and place, um, and uh, we, especially in the comedies, are going to look for the great room scenes, as they are called. And we're going to look particularly in an episode like this, which is the first six movies of their collection, for a lot of uh, loud, often even screaming fat people. Fat people screaming. <laughs> That's <laughs> a common theme in Coen Brothers. <laughs> um, and I gotta say, thank you to the Coen Brothers for nurturing John Goodman's career. Like, I do believe that someday John Goodman's gonna win an Oscar, be it a lifetime achievement or finally just winning a supporting or... or Even if it's posthumous, it'll yeah, happen. It will happen <laughs> for him, but... Um, I've always thought he was a, a really good actor, but he is always great when he's with the Coen brothers. And that's the benefit of having two brilliant guys write parts specifically for you. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty nice place to be in, I suppose. Have you seen John yeah. Goodman lately? He's lost some weight, I've heard. Yeah. Well, he looks like uh, Alec Baldwin and Val Kilmer sort of took half of him away and split it between the two of them. Oh, no. <laughs> he's like a slim-looking guy now as so they balloon. Well, um, I don't know what more I need to say as an introduction to the Coen Brothers. Is there anything you guys want to say before we get this ball rolling and uh, talk about the first six of the feature films of the Brothers Coen? <laughs> um, <clears throat> just to preface, because I know uh, I can just imagine you getting angry with some of my feedback. Uh, I'm judging all six of these as Coen Brothers movies, not as... as uh, movies i'm judging them against the quality of the directors so there are a couple there was one that i was surprisingly disappointed in uh and one another one i didn't like so much um but that's four coen brothers they're still so much better than most of what's out there <laughs> right mm -hmm. so you'll temper it you're, you're hardest on the ones you love <laughs> right i've had yeah. the pleasure but also disadvantage i guess of often having no more than one no-brainer bad movie on a list. I've, when I've been on the show, on the, the podcast, there have been lists of movies where I really like most of the movies, and this is a case where I really like all six movies. <laughs> uh, so I echo what Matt just said, that because of that, I'll speak more disparagingly of, in certain places than I actually feel, because really I'm talking about these movies span from, like, 87 to 98 on the quality scale. They're all way up in the A-plus uh, range. Our, our mutual acquaintance, Jeremy Cook, once said on the podcast, he doesn't like Sixth Place because he equates it with Exorcist II, The Heretic, <laughs> which, which was last place in our first Terrible Twos episode. There's a stigma to being last place. Yet here They're, today, one of these six great movies has to be last has place. Has to be in last place, but uh, yeah. I'm a I'm a I'm a Cohen fanboy, and I think that it's good to have Matt here to level me out because uh, <laughs> uh, for me they're all in first place. <laughs> uh, thanks, you guys, for being here. The six Cohen Brothers films that we uh, are going to talk about: Blood Simple, their debut. We're going to follow that up with Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, The Hudsucker Proxy, and Fargo. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. You've been thinking about it so much, driving simple. 
me, come charging in here, scaring me half to death without even telling me what I'm supposed to be scared of. The less you know, the better. Nobody knows you hired me. Hope you're planning on leaving town. I want to have a word with you. You better make sure he's dead. If he ain't dead, he's gonna get up and try and kill you. He looks stupid now. So before I dig right into Blood Simple, and actually there's quite a bit to talk about in Blood Simple, a very impressive debut from the Coen. I can hardly wait to see it. <laughs> um, We're going to watch it first, right? One of the things that I mourn about the dying medium of, you know, the physical medium, Blu-rays, DVDs, is uh, cool special features. And if anybody out there can get their hand on the DVD or Blu-ray special edition of Blood Simple, there is a commentary track uh, from Kenneth Loring of Forever Young Films. <laughs> the entire thing is bullshit. It's all partially, I think, scripted by the Coen brothers. They hired this British actor who uh, was in Best of Show. He co-narrated the dog show with Fred Willard. I can't remember his name. <laughs> right, I remember the guy. <laughs> uh, so you can listen <laughs> to this this ridiculous commentary overlaid on top of Blood Simple for no reason other than the Coen brothers are <laughs> just, I don't know, high-fiving the hardcore Coen brothers fans. <laughs> Really worth your time, surprisingly, though. Well, they make it clear with that whole Forever Young films what they think of reissues and special editions and commentary tracks. And we'll hear from them again in the special edition of Lebowski, which we're not talking about today, but someday. Someday. But me, anyway, I, I guess we should talk about Blood Simple, <laughs> which... Uh, it's a Texas love triangle, I guess, essentially. John Getz is having an affair with Frances McDormand, and uh, her sleazy husband, who runs a bar, hires a not-super-scrupulous detective <laughs> to, at first, uh, to at first spy on them, and then hires him to kill them. Uh, this sort of echoes into like a chain reaction of, of misunderstandings. I think what's really interesting about the movie is that every character approaches the story from their own sp place, and every character gets things wrong in their own way. <laughs> uh, the perspective work in this movie is really, really good. So some of the best we'll see from them until they get up to, like, No Country for Old Men, where large passages of the film happen where no dialogue is spoken. It's just riveting yeah, like the action. And stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to just jump right on the bandwagon with everyone else who said that Blood Simple is an absolutely impressive debut. You can tell it's a low-budget movie. But you can just tell by how it's made that it's a low-budget movie. I, I don't even know that that's a flaw of the movie. <laughs> you, you, you can just catch the wave of the movie and you, you'll have no problem with it. It doesn't look as polished as some of their future works. That's as close as I can get to a complaint right out the gate. But uh, I will put the ball in your guys' court. Where do you guys land on Blood Simple? What I'll say about Blood Simple is I had not watched it for some time. It was... Uh, we acquired uh, an HD copy of Blood Simple. That's right. And I'd not seen it uh, in that kind of quality before. It was much more beautiful than I remember it being, even though it's not nearly as polished as you said of, of some of their later work. 
Blood Simple, what I found really interesting about it on this viewing was how much of, how many themes and how many hints of characters, how much foreshadowing there is of later movies in the Coen brothers' career, all in Blood Simple. There are, take almost any movie they've made since then, and you can see little hints of that movie inside Blood Simple. Yeah, echoing both of you, it, <clears throat> it watched me like it was kind of a dry run for No Country for Old Men. Like that, those, uh, I think No Country was quite a lot better for obvious reasons. They'd had decades more experience and a way bigger budget, etc. But um, like a lot of the themes and the general attitude, it was not quite as nihilistic as No Country, but it sort of had that noir without all the coolness of noir. Like, it was just sweaty, and everybody was gross. Right, and the main uh, I character... I it worked really well that the, the the only star power it had was Dan... Dan Dan. Because, of course, Francis McDormand wasn't anybody at the time, and I don't really know if anybody else in it has gone on to anything. John Getz has had a bit of a career. He had his hand and foot melted off by Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in Zodiac. He shows up in character roles here and there. Much right. like No Country for Old Men, right? The male protagonist is sort of fail sauce who gets killed <laughs> unexpectedly, semi-expectedly, three quarters of the way into the film. Um, the Anton Chigurh character from No Country for Old Men, uh, there are some similarities between him and the unscrupulous detective, as Larry put it. I find him to be one of the most unnerving uh villains they've ever written like Shiger is really unnerving but this guy also has a creepy child molester factor that Shiger did not have I was just afraid yeah. of Shiger this guy made me want to shower M. Emmett Waltz is the name of the actor who plays that character and you can practically smell the sweat in his suit and the booze <laughs> the sweat and booze and tobacco and prostitute in his suit his Actually, thick, heavy, yellow, like piss yellow wool suit in the heat of that, summer. That still has somehow more yellow stains on it. <laughs> well, Paxton was sort of referencing how the Coen brothers kind of arrived fully formed in a lot of ways. I think that that weird sense of humor is definitely there too. Or the weird unstability of what's going on when when Dan Hedaya, you know, shows up to assault his wife and how that very suddenly gets turned around on him. He goes from being this terrifying threat to this guy with two broken fingers vomiting in the front yard in a few seconds. And Did anybody else Oh, sorry, go ahead. It, it is funny. That whole sequence is funny when he speeds away and he has to turn the car around because it's a cold <laughs> right? you know. Um it is funny, but he came there to beat the shit out of his wife, like, or possibly kill them, right? Like, the whole movie has this really strange quality to it, where I think that we'll talk about it again in Fargo, where it is funny, like, there's funny stuff in it, but the violence is still real, the stakes still count. Yeah. And there's, like, real loss. There aren't a lot of comedies where a protagonist is killed. Right, it doesn't match, but it's one of the things I love is how they mix genres continually. They're always playing in at least two. It's funny and it's awful. I guess Miller's Crossing is going to be echoes of this as well. The timing yeah. of the dialogue is something else that's just for me astonishingly fully formed right there out of the gate. Uh, I 
have never been able to fully articulate what it is about the timing of their dialogue in films that Joel, well, they both kind of direct, but in, in the films they create together, there's an, uh, uh, it's much more subtle than mammoth timing to the way the dialogue has to be delivered. But when you see someone else direct something they've written, it almost like it does not work most of the time. But when you see the way they time dialogue and the way they have actors deliver dialogue, it seems unnatural a lot of the time because sometimes in comedies like Hudsucker, they really accent and exaggerate or Fargo accents. The, uh, the timing is also a little bit un- unnatural feeling, but it's unnatural feeling for screen, not so much for an actual conversation between people with thoughtful pause. Well, and where the dialogue seems to be valued more than story. It's not and silence between dialogue is valued more than... It's, it's not a movie that is a quick pitch that fits into a blurb on a TV screen. Like I sort of dismissed it as a love triangle crime thriller because that's an easy way to piece it down, but it's very narratively complex. <laughs> it brings you a meal. You, you, it feels like a movie that you've seen before, but there's so much more to it. The level of detail. And as they get bigger budgets and more ambitious with their filmmaking, that detail keeps going up and up and up. And I just love the specificity. You know, uh, it's something funny that happens when you're, well, I guess you get used to it if you're the Coen brothers, but when you're a screenplay writer and they they start making your screenplay into a movie, you make a note about a lighter, for instance, that has this guy's name on it, or or the little hanging uh, mermaid with the tits that light up when you pull the string. And then all of a sudden, somebody has to conjure that on screen for you. Like, yeah. you don't get the feeling like anything was accidental, even in this low-budget first feature. There was something very, very precise. I guess you have to assume there was a happy accident. Did you catch the flock of birds flying over the stretch of highway in that point-of-view shot in the car? Yeah, I did. Yeah, that was one of my... I mean, that whole scene was one of my favorites, or that whole shot was one of my favorite parts of the movie. It's weird, because you, there's no way they could have planned something like that. It's just gorgeous shot. Like, you see the flock go by, then you see the shadow of the flock pass over the yeah. road. It's just beautiful. But, again, I hate to jump forward, but I will. I feel the same way about that final shot in Barton Fink, where that seabird dives in and grabs something out of the waves, just as she turns and looks. Like, right. They didn't say, cue the fucking seabird. And no, they sure saw it today and think it was digital. Yeah, they sure as fuck didn't animate that, right? So there is some yeah. things that I just, just happened. It... Like, some of it is happy accidents, but never it never feels like an accident. It always feels like the Coen brothers were on point, and this is precisely what they wanted on film. Maybe Sonnenfeld yeah. was just that good. Yeah, Sonnenfeld just knows. We gotta knows shoot exactly this. Where we gotta to shoot this right now. That bird is ready to go. Well, they got their spotters out a couple of miles down the road, and when a flock is coming, they got their their cameras set up. That is Sonnenfeld, right? Yeah. That simple. He did shoot that first one? Yeah. Well, I thought maybe it was time to be a little bit controversial, because uh, we've been throwing a lot of love on it, yeah. and I think for a first film, Tour de Force, um, I didn't actually like it that much as a movie. So it was the the um, cinematography was fantastic. Uh, the mood was really great, but I had a real hard problem giving a fuck about any of the characters, particularly our protagonists. Like the um, the bad guy was interesting, and Dan Hyde I was of course always great, but 
I don't know, like, they didn't seem to have any chemistry with each other, and they didn't really seem to have, they're just not very charismatic. Um, I connected with John Getz. I don't know if I sympathized with him, but when he walked into the bar room and he sees Hideo has been shot, he assumes that Francis McDormand has done this. So he's doing this all for love. But it goes from him just disposing a body <laughs> to, you know, this guy's not dead. Now he has to try and kill him himself. Oh, he can't kill him himself, but now he's got blood all over himself and he's made himself look more guilty. So we'll just have to settle with burying him alive. Now, yeah, that scene was horrifying. Wow. That, that was a great scene. <laughs> a fantastic scene. Now, he, never in his the wildest imaginations would that character ever do something like that. Like, he never... He just went to the bar to get money that he thought was owed to him. And then a few hours later, he's in the middle of a field burying this poor bastard alive. And then a few hours after that, he's standing in front of the woman he's having a love affair with, whom he believes has done this, and she's denying it to his face. And there's this horrible... See, I, I understand, Matt, that... I mean, first of all, when we're done here, just turn Skype off. I don't want to fucking speak to this guy anymore. <laughs> Dead people's boring. But uh, the intrigue is valued more than the characters by the Coen brothers at this point, right, when they're making this movie, it seems to me. But that's also, it's this wonderful star-crossed Romeo and Juliet moment where I... I don't really love the two people, but I don't hate them the way I hate Romeo and Juliet. I, I actually feel the injustice and the, the like just tragedy of these two people who are both actually relatively innocent, totally not understanding one another, not being able to communicate, and one of them is killed, and it's never understood, right? Yeah. Like, he never gets to understand that she was innocent of this, and she never gets to understand what the fuck he was thinking. However, yeah, no, so I, get I am happy um, at the end of the movie when she fires when that she shot survives. The door. Yeah. So uh, for me, all of that is on a plot level, and on a plot level, it's tight. Um, on a cinematography level, it's tight. On a character level, I just didn't care. Like mm. there, there's just so I understood that on a plot level they were in love. I didn't get any chemistry. I understood in a plot level, well, a couple of things, because um, it was set up so that we would be wondering if she was a femme fatale because of what Dan Hyde is saying about her and sort of um, planting those seeds in our mind that maybe she's manipulative. And we don't really know until the very final scene where she kills the bad guy whom she thinks is her husband and she says, I'm not scared of you anymore. But there's always some doubt all the way through um, whether or not she's a manipulative character or a complete pawn. Yeah. All um, she's guilty so, of is having an affair on her husband. I mean, she's guilty of that. Yeah. But that's yeah. it. In the Coen Brothers universe of femme fatale, that's pretty, that's pretty small beans. <laughs> well, that's, so that's what I mean, but it's not... That final scene where she kills... she For those who haven't seen this, I guess, she shoots the bad guy through the door, so yeah. she, she never sees who the bad guy is, and her final... She shoots thinking it's her husband. So the big reveal is that he's got her horrified or whatever through years of horrible abuse. But the problem is they don't have any scenes together except for that one where he drags her out of the house, which the puking in the cul-de-sac was great, but the cinematography felt a little Sam Raimi to me. Like it felt the only time we actually see them on screen together, it's, it's not really that meaningful. 
Mm. Well, in early in their career, you're going to see a lot of Sam Raimi influence because, of course, they're yeah. in tight with Sam Raimi. Um, Sam Raimi. I, I actually think he directed that shot. Um, he worked second unit on uh, Hudsucker yeah. Proxy. He co-wrote the screenplay on Hudsucker Proxy. He directed their screenplay for Crime Wave. He like, appears in Miller's Crossing. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of pretty solid uh, evidence to suggest that the Coen brothers did a draft on uh, the Darkman movie for him. Next time you watch Darkman, pay attention to the bad guy's the dialogue. The bad guy cuts off the oh, fingers I, I with the cigarette. Oh, I listened to your review uh, religiously. I've heard all about that. <laughs> yeah. Nice, nice. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't doubt the Sam Raimi influence. And sometimes I like it and sometimes I don't. I think that they used the Sam Raimi influence to much greater effect in the next movie we're going to talk about, Raising Arizona. Um, because it just seems out of place. Everything else is slow and considered. So when we get those rushing, you know, zooms, they really announce themselves. Yeah. Another thing, like I said, that they're just right out of the gate they're amazing with is how they handle violence. There's an immortal scene in the movie where uh, M. Emmett Walsh is trying to reach from one window <laughs> to another. <laughs> And he gets his hand stabbed through and pinned down, and then the window slammed down on it. And his struggle, the wall. even though we hate this miserable son of a bitch, and even though he's the villain who's trying to kill Francis McDormand, and who's already killed our, 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 our other protagonist, his struggle really becomes the audience's struggle. Like, he <laughs> is in such misery. You're suffering a lot. Shooting with holes in the wall, trying to punch his way through the wall so he can slowly agonize. And we watch it in painstaking real time. It's brutal. It does and, uh, There's no good payoff for him. By the time he got himself out of that trap, Francis McDormand is well ready to deal with anything he's got to bring. Yep. But... Uh, that that's just an incredible sequence like it's a fantastic ending as yeah. well for the movie uh, can i jump you'll sort go, of read go, go. i wanted to jump back to matt's earlier point and say i i i hear you i don't entirely disagree in fact i i mostly agree with you but i do think that there are there's another movie at least one other movie that we're going to talk about tonight that i think is more guilty of having no one to root for right. in this movie. I don't necessarily like all of the characters in the, this movie, but I don't actively dislike all of the characters in this movie. And there are times the Coen brothers ask us to watch movies where there are very, very few people to like. Yeah. Now, it's, this, not, it's not about liking, though. I mean, it's... F liking it's, them, finding them compelling characters. as characters, they're even. I, didn't, I don't find them to be cardboard, personally, but I do find them to be largely unexplored compared to the way they explore character later uh, because I feel like they're focused more on the technical aspects of telling yeah. the story. So I do agree with you on that. I just don't think the problem with the, with the rendition of the characters and with the writing of the characters is as severe as, uh, as you stated it when you said that you felt nothing. I mean, I, you generally feel nothing, so... <laughs> you know, that's, that's my uh, general state of ennui. Um, but, I mean, so this is the only one of the movies uh, that we'll be reviewing that I was actively bored for fairly long stretches. Wow. So the parts that worked worked really well. They had some um, really marvelous set pieces, but mostly, I don't know, I just didn't, I didn't care that much what happened to these people. Like, I was even more into, to jump ahead, um, you know, the the uh, the French guy from Fargo. There's nothing to really like about him, but his boringness is, 
is like magnetic, whereas um, the boringness of our leads, I didn't. There think is at like... least one thing to like about him, which is that he has some of the greatest comic timing. Yeah, right? that, that's true. I well, want to stop exactly at Pancake's he... house. Waking up right after they passed one and demanding a Pancake house is as funny a thing as a human being can do. <laughs> um, but going back to Blood Simple, I think that. I, I guess if you've seen a lot of noir thrillers, this is another one of them. And interesting to note, this director's cut that we're basing our review on is actually almost two minutes shorter <laughs> than the original version. Mm -hmm. The Coen brothers actually took a couple minutes off. Forever it. Young scrubbed out the boring bits. Yeah. Um, so maybe they thought there was some fat to be trimmed. Like, I don't know. I think that the fact that they were taking their time with the story is sort of part of their noir tastes. We're going to see again and again... Uh, throughout their movies, basically detective stories where they replace the detective with some other character. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a barber or it's a pothead but, or it's a, uh, and I think that this is their noir flavoring and that tends to be very sort of fragmented. Atmosphere over character. They go and they meet this wacky character and he gives them this plot point, which leads them to this wacky character, which gives them this plot point. But it's. It doesn't have as clear an A, B, and C, and it tends to meander instead of race to the finish line the way your traditional right. thrillers will. But the, the, that none of that is what my issue was, though, um, because so like I said, this feels like an immature version of No Country for Old Men. No Country for Old Men has really long meandering scenes, but like just from and I mean they they have lots of money and a superb cast. I think that's part of it. These aren't, I mean, they're professional actors, but they're not like veteran actors they're who they could get um, but in uh, no country for old men the meandering scenes like lou ellen just sells it before he has he's got any lines he's an interesting character there's something kind of engaging so even if things feel disjointed or they take a long time that's all right because i was more along i was more on side with him whereas these guys it just like again, a tour de force for a first film, but it was missing a little bit of the, a little bit of the heart for me. The yeah. the script was I thought great and intricate, and the cinematography was technically very good, um, or excellent, um, superb. But I don't know. I just wasn't. I just didn't really care that much about. If you ever watch it again, since you found it so intensely boring, <laughs> watch it from the perspective that of that of their noir. Uh, films it's the one where like who's the who's literally the private detective in that movie the villain, the villain. yeah so I at least right. really dig that about it because I don't think that's any I don't think they do that anywhere else in their noir uh, movies yeah uh, and that's one of the it might not be it might be I suppose someone could say it's gimmicky but I just I wouldn't call it immature but I would certainly agree that No Country for Old Men is a superior movie and that, and that the characters are more developed in the story. And whether that's the Coens uh, and their experience or whether it's just the performers or whether it's Cormac McCarthy's story or whether it's all of that, it's hard to say. But. If the Coen brothers have a flaw, and I am going to say if they have a flaw, <clears throat> I don't know how well they handle sensuality or sexual chemistry between characters. There's, it's not a coldness, but there's a layer of artifice that's put over everything that somehow any kind of artifice in a, in a, in a physical sexual relationship breaks it somehow. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I guess I will meet you so far as to say I think that there the stakes might be higher and we might have felt more if there was some heat between Francis McDormand and John Getz, if like we really understood this passionate connection. But to defend the Coen brothers again, if they want us to not be sure how to read Francis McDormand, is this guy just her exit strategy from Dan Hedaya? Or does she really like him? But see, I think that plays in I think that's intentional because I think it makes it makes us perceive her as weak that she's so vulnerable and so afraid and in such jeopardy from Dan Hedaya that all it takes is for the bartender to, be to nice stick to up for her yeah. and be nice to her and that's enough for her to latch onto him and cling tenaciously to his buttocks and it sets us up to not expect what a fucking badass she is at the end of the movie when she is victorious um, we should wrap this up soon I just wanted to mention it's one of the only films where there's a very very noticeable continuity error in it I will give it a pass, but we actually played it back when Paxton and I watched it. It's it's very definitely there, but um, with the uh, the rifle scope. Yeah, there's a point of view shot where he's scoping through the rifle, and when he fires, the a different, completely different window shatters. And yeah, he's scoping through the top pane of glass, and then the bullet comes through the bottom pane of glass. But this. Oh is, my god! I know. Can you fucking list. believe it? Can you believe it? This movie's bullshit. <laughs> um, I really, really like Blood Simple. I would recommend it to anybody who likes that kind of thriller. It's it's got a it's got a meander. Well, not even a meandering pace. It's got a slower pace, but it's only like a ninety-six minute movie. So it's not. I don't think I don't. I didn't find it to be a hard sit at all, personally. And well, yeah. Well, I agree. It's slow paced. I do want to state that there aren't wasted scenes. I don't think there's much wasted time in the movie, even though there's a lot of time spent in silence. Yeah. I think there's a lot of value in the si- in the silence. And in a first film, that is impressive as hell to me. But, uh, you know, that being said, it's not going to be right at the top of my rank. I think I can say that much. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was uh, technically brilliant, very tight script. It was just missing a little bit of the heart that will... I mean, for me, that's what makes the Coen brothers the Coen brothers, just right. that they needed this some very talking vividness. Pie. <laughs> they Where's needed some pie? talking pie. <laughs> Hold on, Nathan. We're going to go pick up Daddy. I'll be taking these huggies and uh, whatever cash you got. <laughs> you busted out of jail. We released Trashaz on our own recognizance. What Double here is trying to say is that we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer us. <gasps> we got a child now. Everything's changed. Yeah! Where's Junior? <laughs> Who the hell are you? I'm a fan. We're absolutely going to get him back. Just ain't no question about that. Give me that baby, you warthog from hell. <laughs> and you want to know another thing? I'm going to be a better person from here on out. Let's go get Nathan Jr. Raising Arizona, a comedy beyond belief. Well, it ain't Ozzy and Harriet. Okay, so Raising Arizona. Obviously, they've got a bigger budget to play with, and they've jumped genres. Instead of sort of edging the comic environment, they're full-on embracing this sort of lunatic world. And uh, I think you can almost draw a line through the Coen Brothers movies. There's the ones that are sort of in the arch-violent, quote-unquote, heightened but real world. 
And then you've got sort of the whimsical, crazy, magical world with the movies like this one and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and Hudsucker and Habit, where the, the rules of the world are a little bit shaky. It's fantastical and uh, almost, almost cartoony in presentation, but for me, consistently charming. Uh, yeah, it uh, borders on magic realism at parts in uh, Raising Arizona. <laughs> it's not as overtly magical as HUD, <clears throat> but it certainly has a lot of uh, magic going on, digging out of a prison with your bare hands in one night, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, it's probably got one of the more famous pre-credit sequences in film history, as we get almost ten minutes of setup before we get our credit scroll <laughs> for Raising Arizona. But in that time... We have, at least I'll speak for me, in that 10-minute setup, I have utterly fallen in love with High, <laughs> and I've utterly fallen in love with Holly Hunter's character, even though they have decided that in order to, you know, achieve their idea of perfection and happiness, they are going to steal one of the Arizona quintuplets, because they have more than they can handle. <laughs> and as it turns out, uh, Ed is barren. She cannot, she cannot provide the child, and since H.I. McDonough has a speckled past, speckled past been uh, consistently robbing, <laughs> armed, well, unarmed robbery, I guess they would call it, because his gun is never loaded, but dozens and dozens of convictions for armed robberies standing in the way of uh, any adoption happening. Recidivism. Yes. <laughs> That's one boneheaded word there. So we jump in, we launch into this chaotic, mad, slapstick, adventure comedy farce with this very charming couple joining hands and agreeing let's kidnap us a baby <laughs> and uh i think one of the many great accomplishments of the movie is how much we like these people in spite of the fact that they are criminals <laughs> yeah. who without much well, reflection at all just grab a ladder strap it to the car and go steal a baby oh, i hate to be a broken record on this but because we like the characters so much. They're, we just gravitate them towards them so much that, uh, you know, we're, we're with them from the get-go, you know? Like this one, if... So, as I was saying about uh, Blood Simple, it didn't quite have the heart. This one is... And their follow-up movie, it's like nothing but heart. Yeah. It, it's just so... Hartuous? Hartuous. <laughs> Let's say it's a word. <laughs> As of the 100th episode of Ranking Review, <laughs> Hartuous is a word. <laughs> no, there's a real Oshex quality, and I love the subplot of anybody who spends any amount of time with uh, Nathan Jr. <laughs> uh, falls in love, with fall in love with them. Like, instantly, like, just commit their lives, dedicate themselves to the well-being of Nathan Jr. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting also to see Nicolas Cage. We talk about people who arrive fully formed. The Coen brothers arrive fully formed. Mel Gibson arrived fully formed. Nicolas Cage was always a crazy fucker. <laughs> like, he was. And in a way, he was really brilliant casting for H.I. McDonough. But uh, I had heard that he was actually not super happy on, on the set a lot of the time because the Coen brothers are very specific about what they want to do. And he's really big on improv you know? He was, well, what if High does this, and what if High does that? And they're more, well, what and if meticulous. we do the script? What if we do yeah. what we came here to shoot? And we're paying you to perform. <laughs> well, uh, that's probably why they got one of Nicolas Cage's best performances in his career out of him, is they're like, stop being fucking Nicolas Cage. This yeah. is 
Because he's not sucker director, punching anybody in a bear suit this time well, out. I would measure that though. Be Nicolas Cage, because the Nicolas Cage crazy energy really feeds into the movie well. Like, uh, uh, there's a spectacular fight between Nicolas Cage and Randall Tex Cobb, and by fight, I believe Nicolas Cage has two two swings. He hits him with the board once at the beginning of the fight, and somewhere towards the long, miserable end of the fight, he spits a tooth in the guy's face. <laughs> but he also does manage to pull the pin on the on the grenade. Yeah, but the whole time that that's happening, this moaning, whimpering, twitchy energy that you get out of Cage, you you still identify with H.I. You can still see him. He's doing all of this to ensure that his wife and that baby are completely safe. So he's weirdly happy about how this is playing out. <laughs> the biker is only hurting him. Yeah. So, so it's a win. It's a win. Yeah. I love Raising Arizona. Yeah. I've loved this movie for a very long time. I am going to say a few critical things about it, though. One of which is that it is a less... Uh, I feel like it's a less efficient script than Blood Simple. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Raising Arizona moves a lot faster, but I two of my favorite characters in the movie are not really necessary, right? John Goodman and his William Forsythe. William Forsythe are fucking hilarious. <laughs> One of my favorite moments in the movie is all them when they are robbing the bank, <laughs> and John Goodman commands them to freeze and hit the deck. And he has that exchange with the old hick farmer about, uh, well, which do you want? If I drop, I'll be in motion. If I, if I freeze, I can't, I can't rightly well be drop. drop. <laughs> yeah. Where did the tellers go? <laughs> but really, the purpose they serve is they lure Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter onto the road to be chased by Randall Texco. Well, they steal All they the baby. do is take the baby. But then they lose the baby, yeah. right? Like, it could have as easily been Randall Tex Cobb shows up and takes the baby, or challenges them, takes the baby and Nicolas Cage. The important thing for the story is for Nicolas Cage to stand up to him. I'm not saying that it's a worse film than Blood Simple because of it, but just on a script level, there, th- I can't identify any extra characters in Blood Simple that don't need to be well, there. They, except for they were from his past, right? Because they sort of, of represent like a lot of, his dark past. Uh, well, yeah, or his... I mean, it's hard to call it dark in this movie. But, but we kind of I mean, got his the, criminal the, history the from that opening his, ten minutes. Recidivism. Right? We, we sort of got that from the opening ten-minute montage, which is one of my favorite ten minutes in movie history. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love this movie. But... And I love those characters. They just don't absolutely have to be there. Do I wish they weren't? No. Absolutely not. I'm really happy those characters are there. They have a very memorable sequence when they erupt from the ground upon escaping from the prison. I honestly think, although I love Randall Tex Cobb's character, I think that they're more crucial than he is. (laughs) Um, You could could have uh, written out the supernatural bounty hunter and had sort of the dark memories from Nicolas Cage's past be the ones to steal the baby that he has to get back. Yeah, well, that would then make those characters necessary to the story. But because Randall right. Tex Cobb is there, they're not. Well, uh, yeah. the Randall Tex Cobb is interesting, and I think this sort of goes into the Coen brothers' use of dreams. Dreams are heavily, heavily used in Raising Arizona. And much like in The Big Lebowski, I think we're meant to believe that these dreams are prophecy, that what he sees is true, is going to happen. Maybe not exactly as we see it, but that the vision is, is, is true. But... 
not only does he see that vision, but he sees Randall Tex Cobb coming. And they make that big deal out of Randall Tex Cobb and him having that same tattoo. He feels him coming in. And uh, did High conjure this supernatural en- like entity? Like he said, he is a being that was created out of the rage that the mother would feel upon waking up and finding her child. She was her gone. wrath. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting uh, because this is a cartoon world where that stuff's allowed to happen. Like in the wonderful, wonderful uh, set piece chase sequence where he's stealing the diapers, the way the cops are like sitting out the side of the car, just w- randomly firing shot after shot after shot. <laughs> like everything about the world is, is, is so crazy that you don't really feel like anything would be breaking a rule. Mm. Yeah. So. But we don't have an answer on that. It's I guess Ronald Tex Cobb is the brown paper box of this movie. <laughs> like, where did he come yeah, from? Yeah, he's the MacGuffin. What was he about? Um, and again, I guess like Paxton, I'm not really complaining about it. It just what that would be the thing that sort of stuck out in that I didn't really understand that area of the movie. <laughs> but it's great to see Ronald Tex Cobb driving down the desert, <laughs> blowing up rabbits and shit. So <laughs> it's not what. I love about the movie. Right. I'll agree with that. This one occupies a weird place in my list of Coen Brothers movies, and this is just going to be downright offensive uh, to you, but <laughs> like The Big Lebowski, I can't find a single fault in it. I think it's really good. I just don't really like it that much. Uh, I, I, th- I think I don't really like their comedies as much. I like their crime movies a little bit more, but like everything about it is perfect it's it's a genius movie um so i it's not a complaint about it i don't really have a complaint about it my one complaint about it is in that fact i think i have less complaints about it than that <laughs> it sounds like it i was going to say my only real complaint because i was just pointing out a, a, a tiny little uh, observation about script efficiency but my only actual complaint if i had to make one would be that even though the movie introduces the great concept of screaming fat people, it overdoes it. I like the sequence where they burst out of the ground, but it's too screamy and too long. But at least in that, that scene I think plays better than the later screaming, punching the roof. In the car. It's a bit overdone. It's quite overdone. (laughs) I, I, I always think that's hilarious. There's a running gag of them inadvertently leaving the baby behind. And in order for the baby to end up where it's sitting precariously in the middle of the highway, it's fallen <laughs> from the roof of the car as they sped away. <laughs> He's fine. He's always just looking adorable and whatever. He's but... protected. <laughs> He's charmed. Yeah. Uh, that's another part of the magical property of the movie. Um, there's a weirdly creepy scene, I find, <laughs> when... Uh, Nicholas Cage first goes into the nursery to steal all the kids and he's trying to pick the best one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the kids starts scurrying away so he scoops him up and he puts him back in the crib and then he turns around and the room is empty. <laughs> and uh, we get all this weird baby cam footage of them sort of stalking him. And when he even goes back to his wife, he actually says, they were crawling all over and he was kind of horrifying. He's kind of horrifying. <laughs> he sounds really upset about it. Well, you know, he's what's he doing there? He's he's trying to decide what the best baby is, like it's the best puppy at the store, and that's kind of like he's creating a piece of property out of the child that you can take, which is exactly what Randall Tex Cobb is, right? He's a trader of children on the black market. He sells children that he's kidnapped 
or you know he either recovers them for the parents and and gets the bounty like he's trying to do or if you won't pay a youngster will fetch a good price on the black market so did high create him with that action does he represent high in that way is that what the tattoo is about and it's more than just he's a criminal like high used to be for robbing stores maybe the horrible crime high did was was more well it was the most horrible thing high did was steal a child yeah that's pretty bad that's pretty bad and we still love high in spite of all of that definitely well and so does nathan senior mm-hmm. right like he uh he's he just sort of gives them some sage advice when they return the baby and a good old texas pat on the shoulder and they, they Leaves like the their baby texas in a crib justice, with an arm right? with a loaded weapon briefly uh, Trey Wilson plays Nathan Sr., and it's an interesting story that the Coen brothers really liked him. I think they saw him on stage, hired him to do this. They liked him so much that the script they were working on, they basically wrote a role specifically for him in Leo for Miller's Crossing. Unfortunately, Trey Wilson died of a stroke before they could make the movie, mm. and they ended up having to settle on Albert Finney. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, oh, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that, that the Coen brothers really specifically do like to write scripts for, you know, people that they know, like John Goodman or Steve Buscemi again and again. They know what that guy's going to bring to the movie, so they'll, they'll, they'll cater it to him. And it would be interesting, like, if they had a role that they'd planned for John Turturro and John Turturro suddenly died in a car accident. Would they just scrap the film or would they try and find someone else who had that, you know? Um, they, they seem to go then go back to those people too, right? Like over and over, like you said. Yeah. And this movie that we've just talked about, it's worth pointing out then, is the second of, uh, you know, there are several movies in a row that they start out with where they do not work with very many people from that film again. Yeah. Um, M. Emmett Walsh shows up for a couple of scenes at Hudsucker Industries, interestingly, where High works. Um <laughs> And, um, yeah, it's the first time we see John Goodman. But, yeah, they're starting to sort of form their troop of actors, <laughs> Yeah, which is kind yeah. of interesting We don't to see. see Nick Cage again, though, and then we don't see Gabriel Byrne after Miller's Crossing. Second only to Big Lebowski for me, and I love the Coen Brothers movies. Uh, what I will say about uh, Raising Arizona is it has appalling rewatchability <laughs> for me. <laughs> like, I have watched Raising Arizona a fucking lot of times, and I could oh, watch it. good. I could watch it right now. <laughs> right? Like, well, I'm all the yodeling has been right going now. in my head the whole time. You right? guys just want to do a commentary on raising Arizona? <laughs> like, um, Can we eat crawdads while we do it? Exactly. Or at least some sand? The, the, there's real joy in the movie. Like you're saying, the whole thing with Trey Wilson forgiving these kidnappers. There ain't no harm done. What'd you do other than just break into my house, steal one of my kids, and have a madcap adventure over the last couple of weeks, but no harm done. It was all good fun. Just don't tell my wife. She'll flip out. Yeah. But he's just, he's water. He's looking for the path of least resistance. Yeah. You know, he... Yeah, he, I really liked him. He, he just he, wants the kids. He back. was great in that role. Yeah. The dealing with the FBI agents and the frustration, and yeah. Which brings us the only Star Wars reference in their entire catalog, which <laughs> is uh, when he's describing the kids' pajamas and they've got Yoda's Yoda shit. shit on them. <laughs> <laughs> Holly Hunter too, like it's it's a tough role in that like uh, her motivation swings so wildly throughout the film, like she's pure good. 
then she's absolutely on board for this kidnapping, then she's absolutely miserable, then she's absolutely like, uh, no, we have to fix this, she's absolutely in love, then all of a sudden there's no way we can carry on together, like, she's kind of a schizophrenic character, and every beat of that is played very well, and she still seems so lovable, you just want to give her a big old hug all the time, poor Ed. I wonder how Ed and I would have, uh, turned out if the, if she hadn't been barren and if they'd just had a child together because they would have been no more suited for parenthood than they were as, when they kidnapped one. And of course Frances McDormand shows up again. She's the shrill mother of uh, High's work friend come over for a family dinner and High's they bring boss. all the kids. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, High's swinging boss. It also sort of shows you already the game that you can see in Frances McDormand. It's basically just a couple of scenes that she has in this, but it's a completely different world and different character and different representation than we'd seen in, in Blood Simple. <laughs> yeah. Uh, clearly, she's got game. <laughs> yeah. She's got a crazy amped up energy like the other characters in the movie, but unlike uh, High and Ed, she's very together she knows exactly what she's doing at any given point she's got a plan she's always executing it she's they're always fumbling and falling apart that she uh yeah she whenever Frances McDormand shows up in the Coen brothers like every time she shows up <laughs> it's for the best. I'm very happy she's fantastic <laughs> I, I can understand why Joel married her <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know what more I have to say about Racing Arizona. I think it's hilarious. I think that definitely the Sam Raimi influence is probably the most felt here. Uh, but it's appropriate to the world. When we do those pans up the ladder through the window into the face of the screaming mother, or when we get all those crazy intense shots of the biker approaching, and he sort of feels like the devil himself coming down the highway. Those shots certainly work better in the high-octane energy of Raising Arizona than they do in the slow-moving Blood Simple, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Which is why you'll see less of it, and it'll stick out more when, mm -hmm. we, when we talk about in the next couple of movies. Is there anything else that you guys want to say before we move on? Uh, there was, but... I no, forgot. not really. I, I give it... High rating, I would recommend it to everybody, but if I never see it again, I won't really mind. Yeah. Well, it's kind of one of those things where when I close my eyes, it's playing right along next to the Oompa band. It's That's just weird. sort of always yeah. going. You kind of encapsulated how I felt about you just then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh all right, all right, it's happening. <laughs> Leo, is he still the boss? Today I back down from a fight. Casper's welcome to the rackets. This town and my place at the table. Casper, can he muscle in? I'm sick of taking a strap from you, Leo. And I'm sick of a high hat. Tom, would he sell out a friend? You shouldn't be confronting Jenny Casper. That's what I've been trying to tell you. I can still trade body blows with any man in this town. Except you, Tom. And Verna. Verna? Is she Leo's girl? What did you tell Leo? Tell him you were a tramp and he should dump you. I want everybody to be friends. You, me, Leo, the Dane. You know who I am? The Dane. Has he got it figured? You dumping Leo for the guy who put a bullet in your brother? Bernie, will he turn the tables? Don't smart me. I want to watch you squirm. I want to see you sweat a little. All you got to do to show your friend is give me Bernie burn bum. Tommy, you can't do this. You don't bump guys. It's not right, Tom. I can't do it. Two of us have faced worse odds. 
Never without reason. I thought you said you didn't care about Leo. I said we were through. It's not the same thing. I'm talking about friendship. I'm talking about character. I'm talking about ethics. So, for me, this is a tough list because I love the Coen brothers. I'm a fanboy. And, like, anybody listening to this, take it with a grain of salt. Like, uh, I'm, I'm biased towards the Coen brothers. So having to rank six of them is going to be tough. But the only saving grace is that for the time being, I don't have Miller's Crossing and The Big Lebowski on the same list. <laughs> um, like I said, like Miller's Crossing is one of the first movies I ever bought when I started collecting movies. I remember very clearly watching it with my dad and getting into it. And um, it's a complicated plot. And I was a young kid, but I followed it and was familiar enough with gangster movies to know that this movie was setting up a story in which Tom was going to be avenging the death of his boss and best friend, Leo, right? That's the story that seems to be getting set up. And there's a turning point scene in the movie where the hitmen come to kill Leo, and we will get more to this plot, but I just want to set the table, uh, where a bunch of guys with Tommy guns start storming this guy's house as he's getting ready for bed, and uh, it doesn't play out how it's supposed to. Leo is supposed to be executed, and Tom was supposed to spend the rest of the movie avenging him. But Leo fucking kills every motherfucker in the room. (laughs) And I remember watching it and just being so surprised and so pleased (laughs) with how that played out. It's interesting because now when I when I watch the movie again, if I have a flaw to pick out of the movie, a flaw to pick out of the movie, it's in that scene. But uh, I I just think one of the guys gets shot with a Tommy gun. A couple hundred rounds too many times <laughs> that it's maybe necessary. I mean, the movie's about excess, though. Yeah. Like that, it was deliberately excessive. Part and, of me and has... I think that was, like, the most excessive scene in an excessive movie. <laughs> yeah, but certainly. it was great. I, I had almost the exact same um, uh, sensation when I watched it for the first time. I was, I was so sure Leo was done for, and it was just <laughs> glorious to watch him take those guys apart. And it's wonderful to think that you know where you're going in a movie, and all of a sudden now, I have no idea what this movie's about, but I know that I'm going to like what's coming next. Like, I know I'm going to like what's coming. Uh, it's, it largely has to do with Tom, played by Gabriel Byrne, who's sort of the power behind the throne in this uh, Irish mafia. And uh, he gets mixed up, sort of switching sides, running back and forth between uh, Casper, played very memorably by Cohen regular uh, John Polito. An Italian uh, mafioso. An Italian mafioso, and Leo, the, the uh, Irish boss, who's played very well by Albert Finney. Um, and they and... get their affairs muddled up by a, <laughs> an up-and-coming Jewish mobster named the Shmada Kid. <laughs> John Turturro. <laughs> Uh, so he has to sort of navigate this very lab- labyrinthian plot, and like I was talking about earlier with Blood Simple, the the narrative is less a through line than sort of a series of events. We're locked into Tom, we're sort of stuck into his narrative, but uh, he's usually a step or two ahead of any other character, and usually at least one or two steps ahead of us. I think as far as screenplays, it's as tight a screenplay as the screen as the Coen Brothers have done, and they've done some pretty fucking amazing screenplays. Yeah. I think that the cast is uniformly strong. I think that 
they push the reality to the breaking point only a couple of times, but not so much that at any point it tips over fully into satire. I still feel the stakes. I still feel the reality of the violence. I think the police yeah. shooting up the you know the huge line of cops machine gunning the, that bar. the the one building, which is the scene where Sam Raimi appears. He's the cop with the megaphone. Yeah, or the bullhorn yeah. rather, and. Uh, I, I find that to be slightly more egregious breaking of believability than, than the Albert Finney Danny Boy scene. I, I could have, part of me, I was going to say earlier, there's a part of me that kind of wishes he, when he takes the, the stubbed out cigar and puts it back in his mouth, that he relit it off of the glowing red hot end of the Tommy gun. Just, the movie could have done with that, but it's. <laughs> Basically it's a, perfect. It's, it's basically perfect without it. Complaint, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. So many rich characters, so many great performances from great character actors that I wouldn't even know where to begin. Just generally throughout the movie, I don't feel like it ever takes an awkward step at any point. No, it's it's just relentlessly great. Um, <laughs> it's the first truly like you said it's very tightly anchored to tom in fact is there a scene in the film in which tom does not walk into the frame at some point i think not and that's a first right like uh, raising arizona was was more really stuck to high and and ed quite a bit but, but we, there, cut away. we did cut away to john goodman or we did cut away to uh, randall tex cobb this movie sticks right next to tom yeah well, and I think that might have something to do with the source material, too, because the I haven't read the novel that it's based on, but the cinematic adaptations um, that it's kind of based on, like Fistful of Dollars and Your Jimbo, um, that's always the same. I, I think that um, the, the protagonist from those movies also always gets um, all of the screen time, because... That's part of what's so masterful about the plot is you, like the viewer is always with Tom, but always completely alienated to the stuff that isn't going on around Tom and sort of thinking that, maybe desperately hoping that Tom is one step ahead, but maybe he's not because he also gets beat up in like every other scene as well. So it seems like he's one step ahead all the time, but maybe he's just, getting fucked up all the time and like you're well and he I just mean, as well like could have been if his scene. bet hadn't stuck at the end of the movie right if he if the if his horse hadn't come in he was very very close to getting his legs broken before he was you know close to getting executed for other reasons um tom does have flaws part of it is his gambling problem and apparently he's been not very successful at that, which is interesting because he seems to have thrived in any other scheme that he comes across. Maybe that's why he's obsessed with gambling, because it's the thing that keeps kicking his ass. Yeah. But it's interesting, he's not a good guy, but uh, Pax and I were talking about this briefly before we started recording. There's a scene where the Dane sort of... J.E. Freeman. J.E. Freeman. Freeman. Thank played you. The Dane. He tells Tom that uh, he thinks that he'd sooner join a ladies' league than kill a guy. And I think that there's some truth to that. Like, we do see that Tom is capable of pulling the trigger when he needs to or when, you know, the circumstances, you know, present him with, you know... Well, we can debate whether or not he had the choice to pull the trigger at the end of the movie. But it's interesting that uh, we're presented with a protagonist who lives in this world of the mafia, but we like him not because he's a cold-blooded killer, but because he's the smartest guy in any room that he's in. 
And we like him because he's got some very, very rakish, charming dialogue to deliver in the movie, and he's always got the this, this smart... He's not just the smartest guy in the room, he's also a very skilled, smart ass. Yeah. And uh, he's willing to take a punch in the face just to get a good quip in. <laughs> it's worth That's it if it was funny. That's got to be Gabriel Byrne's best performance, hey? Uh, yeah. Like, he was good in Usual Suspects, but I, I don't... I think this was the, the pinnacle of his career. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, really good in, in Treatment. I've also I've also heard that uh, I mean he likes the movie and he's happy with it, but he didn't have a lot of fun shooting it necessarily. Yeah. They shot it in New Orleans. He's wearing a wool coat and he's getting punched and knocked down over and over and over again. <laughs> right, like when you watch the movie, count how many times Tom gets batted in the face and collapses to the ground and imagine doing it in sweltering heat, wearing a wool jacket. Right, I get how it wouldn't be fun, but. Uh, you're working with the Coen brothers. Just be glad you're there. <laughs> I think he, he's, when you hear him talk about the movie, he's really happy with it. He yeah. admires the movie a great deal. He, uh, I, I wanted to talk about the fact that this movie is their first comedy buried in a movie that doesn't feel like a comedy. There's Gabriel Burns says that when he first read the script, he thought it was a comedy and was sort of astonished by the finished product that it was so violent and dark thrilling. and thrilling and and that the comedy was came across as as darkly as it did uh, and I don't know if like he was there on the set he must have known how violent the movie was but it, it is very very funny it's just very well yeah. But it would be hard pressed to like yeah. if, if I know well, video stores don't exist right now, but it would be hard pressed to put it in the comedy section, right? This is a crime movie. Yeah. It's a thriller still, but it's set in that slightly arch Cohen universe. Well, because it would be hard to put it. I mean, I guess you could put it as a crime movie because there's crime in it, but yeah. it's not like it doesn't really like a gangster movie doesn't really capture it either, right? Like it's. No. it's it's just got such an admirable balance of being hilarious but also thrilling it, and it's, intricate. It's actually got more, uh, as many elements of a gumshoe movie, which is something they return to over and over again. Tom is playing all the angles. He, yeah. He's moving back and forth between, he, he's the shifty gumshoe character like the dude who can talk to anybody, whether it's Jackie Treehorn or the Big Lebowski. He speaks everybody's language, he sort of walks amongst everybody. Even though the movie's a gangster movie, Tom is sort of above it. Yeah. it. When it came out, it didn't do particularly well financially, and the critics were kind of split on it. And I honestly think it was cursed just that it came out the same year as Goodfellas. Cause Goodf it would also be hard... Oh, sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Well, Goodfellas, I mean, even though it's not, it's a movie. It feels very genuine. It feels very real. It's sort of, you know... It wasn't as composed as The Godfather. It sort of showed the good and the bad of, of that criminal world. And uh, I think that all of the laudits, all of the awards, you know, were going to go to that. And people just didn't know what to do with Miller's Crossing. Right now, today, and I fucking love Goodfellas. I think it's a brilliant film. Miller's Crossing is better. Miller's Crossing is a better movie. And, oh, uh, for sure. And, like, I say that as a huge fan of Goodfellas. <laughs> <laughs> so, like... Uh, Impressive. It's it's interesting to me the movies that hit for the Coens and the movies that don't, right? Um, you would think that if between Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing, that Miller's Crossing would be the one that would have pleased the audiences more. Mm -hmm. But 
Barton Fink was a much more successful film in that respect. Same thing when we go on to Fargo and Hudsucker Proxy. On paper, Hudsucker Proxy looks like the broad hit, mm-hmm. but it's Fargo that will become the one that changes the game entirely for the Coens. Yeah. So it's really strange, but history has been very kind mm-hmm. to Miller's Crossing. I think that they did find their audience. Um, you they, well, what I was trying to, what was going to say before about why I think it maybe didn't do, besides Goodfellas um, stealing its thunder as far as gangster movies that year, but like I think about people like my dad watching it, and he likes a good like action crime movie, and it just like it would be enough to whet his appetite but then too silly like he he just wouldn't it wouldn't jive with him i don't know if he's seen it but i could see large segments of audiences being disappointed because it's too zany um even though it's not it's not zany like raising arizona but there would be enough that i could see it being off-putting yeah it's just so rich with great details. I love the two gangsters, the little guys named TikTok. I can't or TikTok. TikTok I can't remember the other guy, Frankie. Frankie. The the big guy is actually kind of a soft, gentle <laughs> fella, and the little guy is this totally dangerous dude. Or uh, the both of whom respect Tom. Oh they, yeah. They only beat him up because it's, it's their, their job. job. Yeah. All of them. <laughs> Uh, Same as the cops, really. There's a detail I remember missing when I first seen the movie uh, that the Dane and the Steve Buscemi character are, are together. They're a couple, uh, which wasn't a very common thing in, in the 1990s to even address. And if they were going to address it, you'd think they'd make a bit of a thing of it. But everybody knows that, you know, that's Eddie Dane's boy and nobody makes a deal of it. You go and call Eddie Dane a fag if you want. See what happens, <laughs> right? <laughs> but... The whole movie, rich with details. Marsha Gay Harden, who, uh, really tough character, right? Like, she wants to do anything she can to protect her brother, Bruni Brunbaum, who's this interestingly, unbelievably slimy, duplicitous Jew, <laughs> right? And the Coen brothers made, like, one of the slipperiest bastards in the movie, Jew. Oh, and incestuous. <laughs> yeah. He and even slept He admits that he slept with his own sister. You believe is, that? Yeah. She's a sick twist. But Marsha Gay Harden, in spite of the fact that, like, yeah, you could argue she just, using her body and her connections to, to, to get her way, it, you know, seems like a fully rich character and a tough presence in a world full of men, you know. Uh, on yeah. that, I, you, you'd mentioned earlier that the Coen brothers don't, uh, they often, it might not be a struggle, but there aren't a whole lot of really scintillating chemical relationships between right. you characters. don't feel the heat between them <laughs> and even though these two characters Marsha Gay Harden and Gabriel Byrne's characters they they re- they hate each other <laughs> and there's just huge huge dripping spoonfuls of chemistry there that you can yeah. really sort of feel why these characters are attracted to each other that they are attracted to each other and that they are like they're just like sick they're they see through each another. other they see through each other and i think that's the thing that they connect on mm. <laughs> yeah they're both sons of bitches yeah or as she puts it they they're both just about rotten enough to deserve one another right right albert finney was having such a good time doing miller's crossing and working with the cohen brothers that even when they were done shooting him he hung out there's a scene where uh, Gabriel Byrne confronts uh, Marsha Gay Harden in the ladies' room. And uh, as he enters the room, he says, Close your eyes, lady, I'm coming through. All the ladies rush out. 
And one of the last girls to leave is actually Albert Finney in a maid's outfit in drag. <laughs> just <laughs> fucking because. <laughs> just because. That's awesome. These are the rewarding details that happen when you've watched a movie like 50 or 60 times. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about the significance of the hat because it's mm-hmm. a thing that... That's the paper brown box of this Some one? people watch the movie and go, what was with all the hat stuff? Uh, so I'm curious to, I know what I think of the hat. I'm curious to know what you guys think of the hat. The whole, there's nothing, uh, dumber than a man chasing his own hat. Well, I mean, the opening title card of the movie is a hat blowing away. Tom has a dream about losing his hat. Tom is constantly, when he does lose his hat, he's always reaching for it. It's like Indiana Jones. He's got to have his hat. Yeah. I, I thought it was just kind of control of the situation, right? Because Tom is, I mean, it's what I was saying before, we're always not sure if Tom's in control of the situation or not. And I think Tom's always not sure, uh, which is why he's always losing at gambling, because those are times when things are completely out of his, his control. So I think it's when when he's got this, he's got the hat on, but when he's feeling, um, I don't know, like he's hats blowing in the way I don't know what to do with this metaphor but you know what I mean it's, <laughs> the hat equals control uh, again I, I guess for me I, I've locked into the idea of like the Coens using dreams as sort of uh, premonitions. Pre- pre- premonitions predictions into the future so when we see that hat blowing in Miller's Crossing we know that, that something important is going to happen there there's some significant turn that's going to happen mm-hmm. um that's an interesting thing. Arguably the biggest tactical error that Tom makes, and he is tasked by Casper. And again, John Polito is so fucking good as Casper <laughs> in this movie. Really but he is told to go and kill the John Turturro character at Miller's Crossing and leave his corpse out in the woods. And there's a very famous scene of John Turturro unashamedly bawling and brailing and just trying to, you know, desperately, desperately convince Tom, please do not kill me, please do not kill me. There's nothing humble about this this desperate plea, and Tom relents. He can't. He finds he can't pull the trigger on it for some reason, and this tactical decision is what really complicates things for him going into the final act of the movie. Yeah, so and it's you interesting you whether were, or not you're he has 100% love sure enough. that that wasn't part of his well-orchestrated plan to get Totoro and Casper to shoot each other. Oh, that or to have a fall guy for that. That early in the story. Did he? At that point, no, I don't think he was that many pieces ahead. I don't. I mean, I could be wrong, Matt, but I don't think so. He was not expecting to be picked up by Tic Tac and and uh, the other guy. He was just walking down the street, and they say, "Come with us," and then they throw Bernie in the car. It was just an, a situation that was thrust upon him. Yeah, he did not predict. It's the one time. That's why he vomits. It's the one time he didn't. Well, that's when right. Dane takes him out to look for the body. Right? Yeah, he he did not predict at that point later, so it wasn't part of his plan. Otherwise. He wouldn't have, he, you know, it was Bernie who planted Mink's corpse there as the, as the backup. But see, back to the hat for a sec, if I may. Yeah. I think that Tom, Tom's uh, fatal flaw is his, uh, his need to keep up appearances. It's his pride, right? He's nobody, she's, Marcia Gay Harden's never met anybody who makes such a point of pride out of being a son of a bitch. Right. Right. Tom is unwilling to swallow the notion of his boss paying his way out of his gambling debt. And that point of pride, uh, that refusal to allow anybody, even his closest friend, to see him as weak enough to need help, 
leads to him alienating everyone he cares about. And his dream is that he's chasing his hat. And when she, when she tries to analyze his dream and he tells her, no, that's not what the dream about is about. There's nothing as foolish as a man chasing his hat. That's, Tom's chasing his hat most of the time through the movie. Tom is, is trying to, you know, he's, he's physically always putting his hat back on, including right at the end of the movie. The last shot of the movie is him putting his hat back on and almost posing for us like he's regained his sense of self. But where is he at that point? He's oh. no longer affiliated to either of the crime organizations. His debts are paid, but he, all of his friends are either disillusioned he's or dead. So he's got his pride. He's sort of Lewin Davis, which is something that I'd not thought of before until Larry and I were talking about the movie just before getting on Skype with you, Matt, that the movie actually has a lot of in common, or at least the character of Tom has a lot in common with Lewin in that mm. if he was able to open his heart a little bit more to Vera and if he was able to be honest with Albert Finney the the one person that if Tom can trust anybody in the world it should be it should be Leo and he he can't that's too uncomfortable for him and it's it's interesting to me to try and figure out why Tom is so uncomfortable having friends he will, he is so self-reliant that he will only be self-reliant he will not he will not tolerate anyone else's working in an assistant um, maybe he's whispering into the boss's ear because he imagines himself running the show. He imagines himself in control. And this whole story that takes place in Miller's Crossing kind of proves that his control is a little shakier <laughs> than maybe he, he once realized. It's an interesting trade, right? For a man to get his hat back. For the woman he loves to walk past him and tell him to drop dead <laughs> are the last words she ever speaks to him at her brother's funeral. And again, I don't want to underwrite this. The screenplay is fucking incredible. The dialogue in this movie is so good. And then over He's and still ab- such a son of a bitch with his dialogue in that moment. <laughs> when he walks up and says, nice turnout. Because <laughs> As a Albert Finney and Vera are the only ones to show up for her brother's <laughs> <That's> funeral. <laughs> <laughs> but over and above all this amazing dialogue, just these perfect scenes. One of the earliest scenes in the movie, uh, a little boy and this <laughs> scrappy little dog find a corpse in the alleyway. Rug. Rug, <laughs> Rug Daniels. Daniels. And there's just this point-counterpoint of this little boy staring curious and shocked at the body, and this body staring back at him or seeing nothing. And then he inexplicably steals the guy's toupee <laughs> and scampers away in this adorable little kid way. They even are asking about it. The gangsters are like, why did they take his hair? Yeah, that's so strange. Hair? That's weird. Maybe it was Indians. One of them <laughs> says, <laughs> like, the detail, the performances, it works as a crime thriller. It works as being funny and charming. It's completely uh, in the Cohen universe. It's almost one of the most perfect examples of the Cohen universe. Like, I'm frothing at the mouth. <laughs> Miller's Crossing is an epic motion picture. Can we pause this and watch it? Yeah. <laughs> Anybody want to watch Miller's Crossing? If you have not seen Miller's Crossing, go to the bathroom, look in the mirror, slap yourself hard once across each side of the face, and go Netflix Miller's Crossing right now. Well, I always feel the most like a cult critic when I'm hyperbolic to one end or the other, when I'm just gushing over a movie or when I'm just yelling at a movie. <laughs> but I can't help it. Miller's Crossing is just fucking delicious to me. So. It's, so. it's really hard to pick a weak point in Miller's 
crossing. It's just everything about it works so well together. You do have to walk with the movie. The movie doesn't move you under its own power. You have to be paying attention. It's interesting how many people I've shown that movie to. Well, maybe not that many, but a couple of people who will watch that movie and not and pay attention, but still miss things like the the love affair between the Dane and and uh, Steve Buscemi. and Steve Buscemi's character. What's his name? Mink. Mink. Mink Larui. <laughs> Um, yeah. I keep on saying, um, yeah, because um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Because, right. because there's so much more to say, but we are out of time, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Los Angeles, Mr. Fink. Excuse me? Howdy, neighbor. Are you a writer, Mr. Fink? Actually, I'm writing for the pictures now. Oh, it's an exciting time, man. The writer is king here at Capitol Pictures. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bond? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out and enjoy a song? Is that more than one thing? Okay. Devil on a canvas, 12 apple, take one. Just having trouble getting started. Wallace Beery, wrestling picture. What do you need, a roadmap? We all need understanding, Barton. Oh, you'll lick this picture business, believe me. You got a head on your shoulders. And what is it they say? Where there's a head, there's hope. I'm sitting in the audience, the lights go down. Capital logo comes up. Come on. Hey, LAPD. Got some questions we want to ask you. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. Something horrible's happened. Female Caucasian, about 30 years old. Ever seen Munt with anyone fits that description? But, you know, with the head still on. Well, Barton, you might say I saw peace of mind. Right now, the contents of your head are the property of Capitol Pictures. Charlie, why me? Because you don't listen! I'm a writer. Look up on me! So, here's Barton Fink, uh, a very surprise winner of the Palme d'Or at the prestigious Cannes Film Festival. And by far, at this point in their career, I think their most difficult movie. This, I mean, I think Raising Arizona and Blood Simple were sort of playing to a fairly broad audience. Uh, Miller's Crossing was a challenging gangster film, but for people who like that sort of thing, they will like it a fucking lot. Barton Fink seems a little more personal, a little bit more arty. Not just that it's about a writer who, you know, moves from the stage of New York to Los Angeles to write for films, uh, selling his soul to the Hollywood <laughs> system, as it were. Narratively, it's very unclear. It, it's a movie that asks way more questions than it answers, and uh, generally tends to leave people confused and perplexed which will give you a round of applause in the art house, but generally doesn't return dividends in the box office. It's interesting, uh, was Michael Lerner got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I hope that's right. He played the studio executive who was in charge of the wrestling picture that Barton's task was It's a wrestling picture! I will yeah. I will destroy him! Uh, <laughs> for me, though... The movie belongs to John Goodman. I think that it's up there, if not the best performance of his career. Uh, and John Goodman, just to st- we always go off the 
the, the, plot. the plot. And it's important because this is a movie for people listening who it's one of the ones they're less likely to have seen. Yeah. John Goodman is living next door to Barton Fink. Barton Fink being the young celebrated playwright who's moved to L.A. to try and earn a buck. Yeah. So the only person he quote-unquote connects to is his neighbor, the John Goodman character. And you get the feeling like a shoe's going to drop with that character at some point. I don't think anyone could anticipate what that, that was going to be. There's a palpable tension there. You just don't understand what it is. Yeah, he never lets Barton into his room. He always comes to Barton's room. And there's just there's something going on. But the movie is challenging. I, I can't really deny that. It's not a movie that's for everyone. If there's a Coen Brothers movie that's going to turn somebody off, I mean, this and A Serious Man, I think, are, 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 are of those movies that uh, people may just find difficult to the point of toxic. I, I will even use the P word, pretentious. Especially when you're dealing with, like, authors and writing and, and selling your soul to the Hollywood system. And uh, the John Mahoney character being a reference to William Faulkner, who wrote brilliantly until he went to Hollywood and became this evil drunk, apparently, right? There's a lot of balls in the air, and our central figure is this Barton Fink, who, despite being very successful at the beginning of the movie with his play, is miserable. He's miserable at the start of the movie, and he stays miserable through the entire length of the movie. He wants to talk about the common man, but when the common man's in front of him, he refuses to listen to the common man. He basically, I think the way I look at it is that his creativity was spent with that play, which is why the script we end up hearing is essentially that same play repeating itself. So, well, and also that that play was no good. I think <laughs> like the movie opens to the theater full of people in love with it and this glowing review, but it's already pretty cheesy, right? <laughs> which is why I don't actually think Barton think the movie is pretentious because. But Barton also, think the character is. Yeah, so the yes. movie is actually... I don't really think it's a simple allegory about moving to Hollywood and selling out. Like, it's... His his New York career where he was, you know... Successful, Authentic and telling the story of the common man, although he couldn't really stand the common man. And every time the common man opened his mouth to tell him his story, he'd interrupt him, as you said. Mm. Um, yeah, I just don't think it's... it We... It would be a really sort of facile to say um, that that's just what it's about because it's, it's about a lot of shit. <laughs> I guess it's it's about having your head up your own ass is what it's about, yeah. right? Barton doesn't see the world around him because all he can see is his own colon. <clears throat> he, uh, as you guys have both pointed out, doesn't listen to John Goodman, the salesman who lives next door, literally. The, the blue collarist of dudes, right? The the traveling or the sort not blue collars, but the commonest of men. The traveling and he repeatedly sales guy. says, "I could tell you stories." And, and tries he clearly wants. And so Barton you cuts him off constantly. In addition to that, Barton doesn't even attempt. He's all blocked up writing about this wrestling picture, and he doesn't even attempt to watch one, does he? Uh, he's eventually told to watch He's told them. to watch one, but does he watch it? Yeah, that's, oh, the, whole that's the scene group. with the crush him thing. Yeah. But that's after he's weeks desperate at that point. of being blocked, yeah. right? That he hadn't even exposed himself to a wrestling picture. He, he doesn't seem to be interested in anything except what is going on inside of him. It's interesting, too. Uh, they, they say early in the movie, I want to say, was it 500 a week that they were paying Barton? 
which at this time is just an appalling amount of money, and yet he's still choosing to stay at this unbelievably terrible hotel with the uh, wallpaper dripping off the wall. It looks like it's being held by like mucilage. Yeah, the same. It looks exactly something. like because I've never seen this in high def before either. The melting wallpaper glue because there's a heat wave happening in, happening in LA in Hollywood is and the wallpaper dripping off the, the glue holding it up looks like exactly the stuff that starts dripping out of John Goodman later yeah. in the film when yeah, he's exposed his yeah, yeah when his character is is exposed to be, be what the the devil is that what's going on here what well again think? it because gets kind of place, crazy here's a place where you know I I feel like I can watch a movie and understand what's going on most of the time you know I I can be a sharp cookie sometimes I caught the uh, the time loop in Lewin Davis on first viewing etc I must have seen Barton think four or five times now and I'm still not really quite sure what to tell you happened in that movie I'm not quite I'm still not quite sure what I've seen when I watch it well and I think that's my problem with Barton Fink. I mean, I really like Barton Fink, and I find it fascinating, but I don't know that it's a solvable puzzle. I, I don't think all the pieces are there. <laughs> um, I don't know what happened to the Judy Davis's character when Barton Fink wakes up next to this dead woman, and we never know. I don't know what's in the box. I don't, like, understand really what Barton Fink's journey is when he sits down on that beach at the end of the movie. I'm interested in the movie and I try to puzzle it out. This most recent watch, I sort of connected the idea of the hotel or the, the apartment that the John Goodman and Barton Fink are staying in uh, sort of manifests John Goodman's personality. Uh, the fact that it's constantly hot in there, the fact that things are barely holding together, that the pipes are making these painful groaning noises, and that when he finally shows up back again furiously, that the place actually finally just fucking ignites. Yeah. Literally, but although I, that... I mean, I would just change it to I don't. I think it's more it reflects Barton Fink's personality. I would I would find it just as easy or easier to believe that Charlie is something that Barton Fink has conjured as he's kind of conjured this hell of his own making. See, I think it has to do with the this surreal hotel he's trapped in. What is Barton looking at the entire time? He's looking at the idyllic image that's sitting right in front of him when he sits down to write. And when he sits down to write, he blocks out the crazy cacophony of shit that's happening around him. He's got John Goodman next door. He's got all sorts of things. He's in L.A. All kinds of things happening. What's he doing? He's sitting in his hotel room looking at a tiny picture on the wall, almost introspecting. That was a thought that I had this time watching it because I, I have not been able to figure out what the picture of the woman is and how exactly it ties into the beach at the ending because it seems to me that that's clearly connected. Something was set up and paid off there that I don't fully quite get. <laughs> but I'm, am I supposed to? Uh, my other thing that works against the movie for me is just how unlikable Barton Fink is. It's filled out or with... anyone. It's filled out oh with God. a lot of colorful characters around him. Like... I fucking love Tony Shalhoub mm. <laughs> as the, the producer. He has that wonderful phone conversation with the John Polito character. And uh, 
just the way they snaps off of his dialogue. I mean, he's a slimy producer character, but you just like him. It made me want to see Tony Shalhoub in more Cohen movies. Yeah, he said that we mm, don't. Yeah, the big producer who you know kisses Barton's fink because he has that much respect for him as a writer. This comic universe. We're going to see again, all the way like to their most recent film, Hail Caesar. I think that yeah. world and Hail Caesar are very much connected. But whenever we cut to Barton Fink in that hotel room, or Barton Fink in his interactions with these, uh, these other writers or influences that are trying to help him get this wrestling picture written, um, it's the other characters that I kind of like and connect to. I get increasingly frustrated and exasperated by Barton. This is the well, I don't movie. think you're ever supposed to like Barton. I, I actually don't find that a problem, but I can see why that would... I mean, I can see why that would be a turnoff. But it's not... Like, I never really like him because he's kind of pretentious. And I'm for me, he always... Not always, but he, he... I find him, like, strongly representing the kind of person that thinks there's something special about writing. Like, right. the sort of romantic era idea that it's something that geniuses do and that spirit moves them so he's all up his own ass as uh, Paxton so elegantly said earlier and it's annoying but I mean, think that's part of the part of the point of the character but I also think even though he's not like he's annoying but I think he's interesting I think um, John Turturro even though he plays him kind of big in some ways there's a there's a lot of subtlety about the performance as well that I thought was really Really yeah, good. I think John Turturro's like, interesting. It, it, I just don't think Barton's very interesting. Yeah, maybe, but I mean, it was wasn't until like the third time that I watched it that I really realized he was never a good writer. For example, no, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no, no, he was always full of shit. He was always full of shit, and I think maybe that's the realization that you kind of have that epiphany. You kind of have to have <laughs> before you can start taking writing really seriously. Or just that <laughs> writing is it's like a, it's job. a job it's it's the same as anything else uh, i mean judy davis was the i mean her advice to him as a writer was great um the the studio exec watch wrestling pictures watch a wrestling that kind picture of thing. yeah judy davis is interesting too like uh so one person that connects with barton but she just seems so desperately lonely and miserable that they sort of connect on that level they're just both in terrible terrible places she kind of represents uh the, the sort of burdened feminist figure who is incredibly talented but unfortunately living in an era where it's just a man's world uh mm-hmm. the sort of similar theme of the the big eyes i don't know if you've seen that recent tim burton movie but uh, no but i did see some some similarities between um judy davis and i would say the far inferior um heroine from the next movie that we're going to talk about see this was the movie that i I was referencing earlier when I said during our Blood Simple review that there was another movie on this list that for me suffered more from the problem of me not particularly caring about any of the characters I do however find it quite interesting that the character I find most compelling and have the most sympathy for is seems to be John the, the devil right uh, whether he is literally or figuratively the devil is up for debate. Yeah. But I find him to be quite sympathetic. I, you know, at, at least, I, I don't know, I, I feel for, for the John Goodman character. I don't feel for Barton. I, I, if, if I feel anything for Barton, it's kind of just... Um, the stakes of him needing to get that distaste. screenplay. I have distaste for him as a human being. 
I mean, if we're going back to Blood Simple, what I would say is at least that's an emotion. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the protagonist of Blood Simple. The, the moments yeah, where Bart and Fink is them, but... together in the same room having a conversation with John Goodman, there is an energy about that conversation. Even if you don't like Barton, John Goodman works well against against John Turturro yeah. there. Uh, even if you don't like John Turturro, something happens when those characters get together. Definitely, and I do like John Turturro, and I love their scenes together in that movie. But I agree with Paxton that I feel a lot more pathos for John Goodman, who's a character we find out is a mass murderer, than I do for, for the Barton Fink, which is, which is strange. Is it? I, I don't know. He's just an obviously more charismatic guy. Yeah. But he's he's yeah, he's but evil. Not, he's, but I feel his, more his sympathy crime, for him. Yeah, his crime is that he murders people. Uh, Barton's crime is that he's a pretentious idiot who's up his own ass. You would think that I would be more sympathetic to someone who was pretentious than someone who was a murderer. <laughs> but well, I mean, part of it is you never really see him. Do I mean, any you evil. never really see him kill people except for those cops at the end. Yeah, like maybe you saw him. Um, if in fact he did decapitate. Barton's uncle and aunt, and you saw that happen. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, again, Although I rather think that's Barton's own head in the box. Mm. You think it's Barton's own head in the box? I think it's yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow's head in the box. <laughs> oh yeah, that's what's in the box. Or in Seven, that's what was in the box. It was John Turturro's head. <laughs> that's right. Brad Pitt all freaked out. Brad Pitt was like, "I hated Barton Fink. I'm so fucking bored, man." It really felt like those two anti-Semitic detectives walked right out of Miller's Crossing and into Barton Fink, didn't they? Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Another thing that this shares in common with A Serious Man, which is a movie where I find the the central character is really flawed and the movie narratively quite difficult, those, they're both in common of those two movies, is the uncertainty of the, the ending. Uh, we don't know if Barton's family was killed. We don't know. We just don't know what happened. We don't know what's in the box. We don't know what the death of Judy Davis has been. There's just, it's a series of loose ends. And like I say, I stay, I stay fascinated with the movie. And I revisit the movie and I, I think about the movie. But I don't know. I like to believe that it's, for me, that it could be solved. I don't have to solve it, but I have to believe that it could be me solved. Me too. Like, it's a challenging movie and I don't know if it's, a, like you said, it, it might just be an, a really tough nut to crack that I haven't cracked yet. But if it is what you alluded to earlier like are we supposed to understand yeah if that's the ultimate answer to what the fuck is going on in barton fink then i would say that i would have to perhaps disagree with you matt that that it's not pretentious as a film if the movie is not supposed to make sense then i might i might argue with you because the movie's not everything that doesn't wrap itself up into a neat little bow is pretentious that's your no i'm not saying if it that it would have to wrap itself up neatly i mean if the movie's goal is to confuse us and there isn't actually something to be understood there right i'm just saying that i don't understand it but i think the movie can be understood or at least i hope it can be understood but like you don't think open to interpretations is enough like you i mean you could you could make various consistent interpretations with what happened well i guess what i'm saying though matt is that i i can do that most of the time and with this movie i have trouble even i would have trouble putting down my interpretation of events on paper if you asked me to 
I'm really getting off on your idea right now that, that John Goodman is like a complete invention of Totoro. But yeah. there's all these other details in the hotel, too. Why does Steve Buscemi's character, you know, come out of a trap door from the floor? Why does the guy in the elevator look like a zombie and has never heard of the Bible? <laughs> like, Well, I mean, like, so clearly the, the hotel is some sort of um, analogy for hell. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like whether it's an actual hell or just where his mind is metaphorical hell of his own making or something in between because i mean that's another thing that the coen brothers do a lot is magical realism so it's something like i don't necessarily think it's meant to be solved but i don't necessarily think that that's a flaw and i don't necessarily think that that's pretentious and i'm not this is not a negative review by the way i think that the 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 movie is fascinating and i love this the hollywood stuff i think is hilarious like i say tony shalhoub they should use more whenever he's in their movies. He's always really, really funny. I really do like the movie, but it it's it's challenging. It's a bit of an uphill battle. And I say that as a person who I've often said on this podcast, don't talk down to me, movie. Mm-hmm. Don't don't spoon feed me. Don't, just don't, don't assume I'm stupid. I'm not saying this is what the Coen brothers were doing, but I'll try and rephrase what I was trying to say, Matt, which is that I find it irritating, if not pretentious, when a when a writer is is willfully impenetrable like they write something that's intended to be impossible to decipher it's part of why even though i i argue in favor of one quarter of the movie i think 2001 is a really pretentious movie because the idea was to confuse the audience (laughs) the idea was to make a movie that you couldn't understand and i i don't like that and whether pretentious is the right term to apply or not i don't like it when that gets done I'm not saying I think that's what the Coen brothers were doing. I'm saying I hope that's not what the Coen brothers were doing. And right. I don't think it was. I think I am just can't figure out Barton Fink just yet. And I'll go back to it. Again, if I really didn't like it, if I was angry at it, or if I was so frustrated with it, I would just be like, ah, oh, this is potential. I know there are people that have dismissed it. But it's in the company of uh, movies that I find go down a little bit easier. So it's not going to rank as high on the list as maybe some people right. here will think it should. I would certainly... I should look it up. I'd be curious to see what the people who voted it for the Palm d'Or would have to say about what the movie's about and what happened in it. And that fucking box, man. That fucking MacGuffin box. (laughs) Although, Newt, I mean, strictly speaking, the box isn't a MacGuffin because the MacGuffin is the thing that moves the plot. It's Mm -hmm. just the box is like the... The mystery. The thing that they don't show you. It's the movie fucking... It's everything that the movie isn't showing you sort of manifested in one prop, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess to love Barton Fink is to learn to love the box. I'm still, I'm still, I still want to solve it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I really like Barton Fink and I'm quite happy with it being, again, like unsolvable. You can't land on exactly the thing that it was about but I think there's lots of ways that you can interpret like make lots of simultaneous coherent um, interpretations of it that can all sort of be correct and not correct at the same time I mean for me it seems like um, I don't know it's like an allegory for writing but it's one of the few movies about a writer written by a writer obviously that isn't annoying about how about the experience of being a writer because I, for me anyway um, the point is 
being a writer isn't that special. Like, get over yourself. If yeah. you can't get over yourself, you're like Barton, and you're just going to create this whole... Well, I think um, adaptation sort of hits a similar uh, kind of vibe, but like 15 years later, right? Yeah. And uh, I think yeah, much I more effectively, personally. Sorry, uh, you just cut out for a second. What did you say? Oh, I said that I, I think adaptation touches plays that chord much more effectively than Barton Fink, personally. But... Uh, or at least more effectively. I shouldn't say much more. I do like Barton Fink. I really <laughs> like sound really like hostile. I'm on the offensive toward it, but maybe that's just because I had a funny feeling walking into the car hole to record tonight that Matt would really like Barton Fink. Because <laughs> I honestly well, thought you I mean, said... I did this too, Blood Simple, so, I mean, Turnabout is fair play. You said that there was one that you had a sudden turnaround on, and honestly, I thought that Barton Fink was going to be the one, but apparently we're now going to just have to vehemently disagree about the Hudsucker prophecy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, Barton Fink, one of the reasons why I like it so much too is because I think it's really original and really creative. It's just, it's it's unique. It's it's terrific. Uh, yes, Hudsucker Proxy, we're going to disagree on spoilers. I, I love the Coen brothers, and what I most love about Barton Fink is that no other filmmaker would make this movie. Like, it had to be the Coen brothers that made this. Um, and, and I feel like their fingerprints are all over their other movies, too. But maybe someone else would take a swing at No Country for Old Men, and maybe someone else would do a remake of True Grit. It, the Coen brothers would do it better and would do it differently, but no one was going to make Barton Fink but Joel and Ethan Coen. And I'm glad that they did. The fact that I continue to wrestle with this movie that's came out in 1991 I think speaks to its qualities um, I am put in the terrible position of having to rank these six movies that I fucking love so I have to find threads to pull I would not if anyone is being thinking that they're being talked out of watching Barton Fink in this review that is not my intention at all <laughs> please watch Barton Fink watch and Barton even Fink if you, you... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say watch Barton Fink unless you have a, a really strong need for everything to be tied up in a bow by the end of the movie. I don't, I, but I do prefer it when I understand what's going on more fully than I do when I watch Barton Fink. Just put your thinking cap on when you watch Barton Fink, and I prefer the discussion afterward, to be honest, to the actual viewing of the picture. I find viewing the movie to be sort of confusing and unnerving, and then talking and thinking about it afterwards, uh, a little bit more entertaining. I just keep hearing the voice of Brad Pitt in my head, and I want him to shut up, but he won't. But he's just screaming, What's in the box? <laughs> What's, What's in the, the box? box? <laughs> just got hired today. You know, entry level. But I got big ideas. I'm the president and owner of 87% of the company's stock. Then the company, too, has a problem. What we need now is a new president. Some jerk. My leg is on fire. We can really push around. Yo! Yeah, you, boss! This letter was sent down this morning by the big man himself. Sit down, son. Go ahead. Try it out. Did the board consider you an idea man when they promoted you from the mailroom? Well, I guess so. I don't think they promoted me because they thought I was a schmo. <laughs> The guy's a real moron. Cigarettes? No, thank you. What an imbecile. Come up with this. From Joel and Ethan Cohen. It's fun, it's healthy, the kids will just love it, and we put a little sand inside to make the experience more pleasant. Did you have any idea there'd be such a huge response? This is the president. Oh, I don't think anybody expected this much hoopla. <laughs> 
comes a comedy of fame, <gasps> fortune, <gasps> sex, <Why>? greed, <laughs> and the American way. Say, Amy, how about you and I grab a little dinner or a show after work? I was thinking maybe the king and I. Uh, how about Oklahoma? Tim Robbins, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Paul Newman. I'm getting off this merry-go-round. The Hotsucker Proxy. Recently, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee had a lot of attention for The Hateful Eight, uh, and I do think that she was really strong in that movie. And I've always really liked her as an actress, but uh, to start the disagreement between Matthew and I, I would argue that this might be her finest hour. <laughs> she plays the sort of His Girl Friday uh, fast-talking news career gal who breaks the story of the Hudsucker proxy. Uh, She goes undercover to find out that the newly uh, placed president, appointed president of the Hudsucker Industries uh, is in fact just put there to put fear in the stocks, bring the prices of the stocks down so that the greedy executive branch can make a ton of money and uh, gobble up all of the cheap stocks for themselves and then presumably renew Hudsucker to its former power and glory. This was made in the early 90s during the streak of movies for Tim Robbins where he was just on a fucking ridiculous hot streak. <laughs> like, the early 90s was a good time to be Tim Robbins. Yeah, okay, if I said before, in the early 90s it was all Tim Robbins, the late 90s was all Kevin Spacey. It just seemed like anything that these guys touched would work out. And uh, I firmly put Hudsucker Proxy in, in, in the win category for him. I really like his portrayal. Um, we're going back to the whimsy. Absolutely. This is this is the Raising Arizona sort of... We're back into the talking funny movies. Yeah. Super arch, crazy, in-your-face comedy. And I think very consciously Capra-esque positive energy. Certainly. There is an awesome yeah, for sure. It was boy a, howdy was feel to the whole movie. And uh, I've said it before about movies that I find intensely charming. And I do find this movie intensely charming. I get the feeling like all this movie really wants to do is put a smile on your face and keep it there. And for me, it just absolutely does. It's sort of heartbreaking that it was one of their biggest budget movies and it tanked huge in the box office for them. They laid a big egg. It was an expensive loss for creatively and, and financially for the Coen brothers. But everybody who I've ever shown it to seems to quite like it. So here I am, surprise, surprise, lauding a bunch of praise upon a Cohen Brothers movie. What are you doing, Larry? I think the Hudsucker Proxy is a ton of fun. Well, the Hudsucker Proxy is the movie I was referring to when I said there was one movie on this list of six that had dropped a notch, in my opinion. Right. Was the Hudsucker Proxy. But not because I have a low opinion of it. (laughs) Simply because, well, it might have actually been our conversation about why it tanked at the theater. And... I started thinking about why that might have been and why the movie, even though I enjoy it, is rarely near the front of my list of movies to show to people who haven't seen a lot of Coen Brothers It's not a good entry point, maybe, for the Coens? It's not a good entry point, and for me, I wouldn't even put it in, like, the first half of Coen Brothers movies that I would tell somebody to watch. Uh, And it's not because I don't enjoy it, but it's because the movie uh, holds you at arm's length in a few ways, one of which is that as good as Jennifer Jason Lee is in the movie, her character's kind of annoying. She talks too loud all the time. There's a lot of 
off-putting, in-your-face kind of energy that for some reason really clicked in Raising Arizona and almost clicked in the Hudsucker Proxy, but not not quite in the same way. I, and while I'm saying this, some of my favorite moments in, and characters in Coen Brothers' history are in this movie. I love Paul Newman <laughs> in this movie. I absolutely adore Paul Newman. Uh, I love... Uh, what's his name who would later play the big Lebowski who made his appearance as Mr. Hudsucker right uh, his swan dive out the window at the beginning is fantastic uh, the movie makes you hold on through more than half of it before you get the you know for kids gag and <laughs> I keeps on showing this circle to us this is his great innovative idea and it's just a circle and, and that, that punchline is, is delayed. It's quite. delayed over an hour, and it's not yeah. a really funny punchline for it to be dragged I, for an hour. I thought it was kind of funny, because there's a bunch of game-changing inventions in the movie that are all circles. It starts with the hula hoop, and then... Um, the straw. The straw, yeah. The bendable straw. Chris the buzz sucker. Invented. <laughs> and then, yeah... Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty good. And his pitch was, you know, for kids. You know, for kids. <laughs> you know, that, was, that was pretty good. I do think it was pretty good. I just feel like it was almost the joke the movie has to hinge on. Because it goes on, like, he pulls that paper out and says, you know, for kids, three or four times before we understand it's the design for a hula hoop. And, I don't know, it's just not a strong enough joke to carry the first half of the movie. But that's a, again, it's a minor foible. I find it still to be... Norville is, is an intensely charming character, and, and that foolishness of him not realizing that nobody understands what he's talking about is part of that simple-minded charm that he has, that Forrest Gump quality that Norville Barnes has. I just love, I love the cartoon world. Like, this movie could almost have been animated, how big everybody's playing everything. Shet the elevator well, boy, Prespolewski, as you pointed out from The Wire who just loves being the elevator boy so much. Um, you know, the, the two guys in the bar who narrate the meeting between Jennifer Jason Lee and uh, uh, Tim Robbins, they're, you know, completely adjacent. They're, they're the Mikey Onagidas of this movie. Like, they have nothing to do with the story, and yet they become our omniscient narrator for a scene just because, yeah. right? Again, we have the powers of good and evil, this time represented by uh, a sinister old skeletal-looking man with no teeth and this kindly uh, old black maintenance worker who keeps the gears running on the clock. Which is where I'm going to jump in on one of the problems I had with it. Um, The magical Negro character? (laughs) Yeah, the magical Negro. So for all of their genius at writing, well, I mean, they're direct obviously they're directorial geniuses and they really do have a genius for dialogue they're actually good at writing white guys um they're the women are kind of hit and miss in coen brothers movies but there's never more than one um and they're almost always just playing a character but everybody kind of plays a character but you never like have two women in a coen brothers movie um this one had a magical negro that saved our hero for no reason at the end and jennifer jason lee's character actually didn't get to complete her arc so she was um sort of like a loud fast-talking hard-nosed woman 
And then there's this scene where Tim Robbins, he's reading some the article she wrote about him cracking the story, uh, not knowing it was her, and he's saying these mean things, and it's basically, you know, she's probably not pretty, she probably doesn't have a husband, and this is, like, fucking killing her. It's brutal, yeah. But the thing is, like, that's her character. She's, re- she's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, but deep down she's incomplete because she doesn't have a man and then she doesn't even get an arc they have a scene at the bar that's the last time we see her we don't even know what happens to her well she so quits like the, the magical negro she only exists to propel tim robbins mm-hmm. she quits the paper i think that's supposed to be a bigger uh moment for her character than maybe it's played arguably well, and presumably it pans out and she's barefoot and pregnant in tim robbins kitchen <laughs> right where she's supposed to be for this time yeah. period right well but that seems like the movie's ethos to me like that doesn't like so in a way this movie is so much like it's such an homage to its time period that that's actually its politics and i don't think it, i don't think the movie is smarter than that um well i mean i really like jennifer jason lee in this movie i mean i think that she does she has that rapid fire Cohen dialogue, very Maud Lebowski actually, even yeah. with the affected pseudo accent that she presents. But I would argue that I mean, short of Paul Newman, she's the well, she's smarter than Paul Newman. She's easily the smartest person in the movie and one of the most powerful people in the movie. Um, I mean, and so what does she use her smarts and her power for, Tim Robbins? Because that's who, like it's the same. She realizes the that. The story, I don't know. It's like I'm, I don't know. I'm defending the movie, so I think she and Tim Robbins actually have similar arcs in that both of them showed up in the big city, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We just don't see the beginning of her career, and both of them are are sucked into their own success and corrupted by it to the point where both of them do sort of horrible things to one another. And she would came in and setting out to do a them. smear story, right? Because uh, the story but about a, a guy a who's a, story. she 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 comes in with that this guy's an, an idiot, and she makes a buffoon of him in the newspaper because that's a more compelling story than that this guy might actually have what it takes to run Hudsucker, right? No, she's, she sets her to do an expose, and she's right to do the expose. She sets her to do an expose on their shady business practices. She smells a rat. <laughs> so it's not like she's trying to smear somebody that she knows is intelligent and competent. She's actually doing a good job as her reporter. She's doing what she should be doing. But he's supposed to play the role of the idiot president, and he uh, screws up the plans of everyone, you know, by becoming successful, by inventing the hula hoop. Uh, right. Uh, and all of a sudden the stocks go through the roof and all of a sudden he's not an idiot. All of a sudden, you know, he clearly must know what he's doing. He's invented a global phenomenon. Um, and that, that works against her story and it works against the plan of the bad guys. Uh, Norville might only be accidentally brilliant, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he stumbles into success and that doesn't jive with anybody's plan. Everybody wants Norville to fail for some reason. He's... he's- got a brilliant idea or at least a successful one he stumbles into success as a ceo and like entirely by well by accident from his perspective but i do think that you know she's entirely she's a more than competent reporter she's a great reporter but she overvalues her pulitzer as much as he overvalues his success in the hula hoop to the (laughs) point where he won't even uh entertain the notion of someone else having a good idea 
when Buzz comes up with the Buzz Sucker, he simply <laughs> cannot swallow it. And, and he takes on the Paul Newman role of talking down to the little guy. And I feel like the movie... But she never does that, though, because she's always good at her job, right? He has the one invention, and then he's getting hot shades and dating models, and the one thing he isn't doing is working. <laughs> but she can't have the same arc, because she's always only doing her job well throughout the movie. But she happens to fall in love with him. Uh, if it's the romantic construct that's really hurting for you, I mean, uh, I guess I'm not unsympathetic. Again, I found the world to be such a cartoon. Like, when they call the <laughs> the psychiatric institute, guys come with a giant butterfly net to chase him down. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're dealing with, like, old, like, self-consciously old-time Hollywood value system. Like, uh, whether it's endorsing that, like, I certainly didn't feel that way. But it sort of, like, feels to me like people who would throw the, the breakfast club under the bus because Ali Sheedy has to get pretty to hook up with Emilio Estevez at the end of the movie. No, and is I, expose, I don't but think it's that. Is expose I, I, don't think it's like, I think the movie... How to put it? Usually, I'm not. I'm not even really that sensitive to racial and gender politics. But that there's something very head padding about about. I mean, think about the review that you did for Avatar a couple of weeks back. With you know, like you don't have to peel back that many layers until it gets to you know the black laborers <laughs> who are magical, but they're not going to use the magic for themselves. It's going to be for this white guy because that's just how the world is and the movie Hudsucker Proxy is not playing with that convention it's just it's it's I mean again the Coens really aren't all that great at writing women and uh, do they have any other black people in their movies no, like they they have a very narrow focus and there is something about watching this movie that seemed very narrow to me everybody else is caught in the hustle and bustle the clock on the job board is going by faster then, then he, then Norville can read it. She is always hurrying. Everybody's always talking so fast. Da, 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 da. He's above time, right? He is the only one not sucked into the rat race. He's the narrator, which makes him, you know, pretty powerful in in, in the way that the stranger is in the Big Lebowski, right? Uh, I I think it's hard not to pay attention to his negroness because of the way, the way, he the way he's written and the way the character speaks. But that's and the way I'm a character, not... if this movie was made in the 50s, which is what it's, and that's how the black characters would be portrayed. I feel similarly about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where, yeah, there's a little bit of like, almost a pantomime quality to some of the things. Like, uh, you feel like they, you could accuse them of being careless with, with sensitive mm -hmm. issues. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a magical Negro in, in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. who sends them off on their quest. I have to. And I don't well, find but it But the, the whole movie, the, the whole um, climax is on the magical Negro. It's not even yeah, like he in, stops time. in Oh Brother where it's he, he's like a character that kind of bookends. That's what the movie, it ends on, you know, sort of the black underclass deciding that this is the guy to be in charge of the world. Or the man who's wise enough to not be in a great big rush to get somewhere, showing Norval that he needs to slow down and remember that he, you know, had a blue letter in his pocket. <laughs> I, I need to disagree with you on one thing that I think is important, which is that I'm not sure that it's good or honest journalism to 
deceive and lie your way into somebody's inner graces and pretend to be from their hometown and do all of these things and then write a defamatory article about them even though she was right about the fact that he was a, a patsy for their stock market game she she was still complicit in it and whether you think it was wrong or not her character certainly feels like she's done wrong to this innocent man who's who's almost childlike to her right like i don't see the angle of uh, like it's norval's story he's the the uh the sort of central fairy tale figure in the story but i don't see jennifer jason's lee character jennifer jason lee's character as being particularly lowered in any way if anything she seems a to be functioning on a level above Norval pretty much the, the entire movie. Again, uh, the female character and the black character are arguably two of the most powerful people in the movies. But the, the thing, the real thing that's getting to me is that I, this is just not a movie about race or gender politics at all. At all, but right? This is a fantasy the, romantic the comedy, right? Casual racism is is worse than if it was a, an issue. I don't like. I I just I I felt like they were making a movie like like the camp Frank Capra would have made if he found the script for the Hudsucker Proxy, and that this is how it would be presented. Um, and and what's being missed in here too is just all of these amazing sequences. I love the introductory walk and talk at the beginning of the movie where he first gets hired at Hudsucker and he's mm. given his employee number and walked through the mail room. I love the, the whole blue letter sequence. The blue letter awesome. sequence. I love the fucking montage that they have after the hula hoops invented and for a while no one's buying the hula hoop, but then this one awesome kid discovers the hula hoop and just ignites the world and the weird Nazi scientist talk about the science of the hula hoop it's just so full of these cartoonish joyful moments you know is <laughs> was it fair like... to the russian scientist that he be portrayed in such a cold and nazi-esque oh, way are they making a comment on that no, but no right but or wrong i do think that the they're Cone painting broad were... is what i'm trying to say it's very very big and whether it works or not i think they were trying to have one more fun folksy stereotype in the movie and whether that's uh an offensive thing to do or not um i'm not i'm not so certain how i feel about that do all kids it in the doesn't 50s? bother me when i watch the movie it bothers me the if anything about it bothers me it's the uh the sort of ridiculousness of the rubber teeth in the in the clock gears Mm-hmm. And and that's just a very it's a it is it's again a it's just a ludicrous story. world it's right ludicrous. Uh, in the fifties did all of the kids have freckles and and a cowlick no but in in the Coen Brothers universe they do do yeah, all black people the talk in the like Coen that Brothers universe and can't the black people in the Coen Brothers universe mm-hmm. well I mean again how many black people would be working in Hudsucker Industries where do we want to wedge them in here. Do we want to Star Trek this cast up and make sure that we represent? Like, that's not what the movie is. It's it's no. There's a very specific reason Wouldn't why everybody at the boardroom table is, is white old as white men because it's that's fucking authentic, right? So what I'm saying is this movie sort of exemplifies something that, like a blind spot for the Coens, but because that's the whole climax of the movie, it's really like you just got this beggar Vance character that the whole movie hinges on. Like, I, I, honestly, you don't even need to have that clockmaker scene. You know, it could just be Hudsucker who comes down as an angel and stops time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Like, why does he have to be there at all? Because the magical Negro character was something that was alive and well in the Capra era of film. And they were... And you don't think, like, maybe the Capra be, era wasn't... Again, it's, it's more of a comedy than anything else, so I don't think that it's really trying to play roles. But, I mean, to go back to, like, The Hateful Eight or Django Unchained, it would be like if... Uh, he didn't use the n-word in Django Unchained. I'm not allowed to say nigger because it's going to hurt people's feelings. Well, I'm making a movie set in a time where people called black people niggers. It would be more dishonest to not recognize it. In in the Capra movies, what this movie is amping on, there would typically be one black character, and he would often be this magical negro. Is that right or wrong? I don't know. But yeah, it's... like the Scatman Crothers character so, in, in uh, The Shining. So what's, the, what's even the point of... <laughs> They, like, they, why didn't they just do a shot-for-shot shot remake of a Capra Brothers or Capra Frank Capra movie if it's going to be so caught in the politics of the 1940s? Like, if it's so backwards in that way. Well, it's just in the same way they captured the politics in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, I think. Some people thought that was insensitive, too, but I don't think it was. I just think it was a magical, crazy world. And in that period, this is how people were. If you... The Hollywood system considered this norm the his girl friday fast talking uh you know lady as like she's a really interesting character really funny character but it's interesting that her talent is her flaw because really but she shouldn't want to be a... she wouldn't she shouldn't want to be ambitious she should just want to be a housewife i don't have to agree with that to acknowledge that that was the mentality of the time right okay well then i will say this it was like Adam Sandler's movie, The Wedding Singer, that was so good at imitating not very good 1980s movies that it was one. <laughs> so you're just saying, Hudsucker is a not very good 1950s rom-com. Um, Hudsucker is really, really well directed, has some very charming scenes to it. Um, it's very predictable. Uh, it's, I mean, it's just a pretty, I don't know, it's like, Rise and fall and rise. I, they, I don't, it's just. Yeah, a Norval. But it's Norval was going to win at the end. He was going to get the girl. That was never, ever, ever in question. I guess I agree with you there, but I, I don't know what the movie you wanted there is then. <laughs> because the happy character is the one who doesn't really care about the rise and fall and rise. He sees it all. He's fairly. Uh, happy through it all and he happens to be black I mean I I understand the point I'm a little bit disappointed that the review got sort of sidetracked I feel so much by that issue when we didn't mention once the totally casual anti-semitism in Miller's Crossing about the sheeny the what's one dead Hebrew more or less the mm -hmm. horrible things that are said about about the Bernie Birnbaum character in that movie. Why is, I mean, they're middle-class that... Jewish guys writing it, so... They're yeah. allowed. So be, they're allowed because they're Jewish? Really? <laughs> so if they were black, this would be okay. Is that, is that the... They're writing for an awful lot of white people, then. <laughs> but right. I, I don't know. So... Like, I, I just... What does the movie want to be? Is, I guess, the question I would ask of you. I think it wants to be a fantastical romantic comedy, and I think that it, it's pretty successful at that. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I I mean I don't think we're gonna agree on this. Fair enough. Other. Fair enough. 
I do want to just say some other things about the movie because uh, like we're treating this like it's a it's a drama and it, it it just isn't it just isn't it's a whimsical romantic comedy I think that where my problems with it is that it's it's maybe a little bit unwieldy in its size I think the fact that they had a budget the fact that they could spend money in making these lavish sets I love the huge filing cabinet room and the fact that the hands of the clock are passing by uh, the window of Paul Newman's office but they spend so much time drinking it in that this romantic comedy ends up being just under two hours long where I think for me and I've said this before about comedies especially romantic comedies I think part of the, the package should be you bring it in 90 to 100 minutes mm -hmm. get the job done and in that way I think they get so in love with the aesthetic so in love with the world so in love with the peripherals that that uh, it, it becomes bigger than it needs to be and it, you know yeah, they've become really in big. love with period pieces at this point too this is their third in a row mm -hmm. at this point right Miller's Crossing Barton Fink and now this movie and uh, there there is amazing atmosphere in the movie that we've overlooked a little bit and there's amazing physical comedy in the movie <laughs> the sequence with Norval trying to put out the fire while Paul Newman's on the phone is pretty remarkable I love little touches like the uh, like the typist who's retyping the first page of the of the contract yeah. as the flaming pages of the contract are falling down <laughs> past the window uh, and I think that the point of the movie is to be sort of fun and joyful like <clears throat> this is not a serious drama I don't think it's making a statement it's it's just being a throwback magical comedy uh, would I rank it high in the Cohen's career overall no I, I, I wouldn't but uh, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Um, I'm, I'm just. I, I. I mean, it's okay if you don't like the movie as much as I do. I'm just sort of surprised that uh, that, that that derailed it for you. Yeah, my criticisms of the movie are like I have some, but the magic, like the magic Negro character at the end, is not one of my problems with the movie. Does it work for me a bunch? No, but uh, it it also doesn't not work for me. Like it didn't take me out of the reality of the movie and maybe maybe I'm exposing my uh, my white middle class privilege here but I didn't for one moment think of that character as anything other than than the uh, Sam Elliott style omniscient narrator who's there for some reason who's right? there to I tell us the story I didn't put a whole lot of thought into it he's the one spinning the yarn and uh, and it was to me as simple as that but maybe you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm racially insensitive. In a way, it's a, one of their. It's ambitious in production and size, but as far as what it's about, it's kind of less ambitious. Yeah, there's some fun satirical stuff, especially the boardroom dialogue, and I really do like Paul Newman playing the heavy there. It's funny when he did that movie, he really wanted to make a movie that like his kids could see. He there's been a lot of these R-rated sure, sure. movies where he's dropping f bombs and stuff like that. So. Uh, it was one of the last sort of really great golden age, <laughs> gold roles for Paul Newman. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you could tell, it translates that he was having fun with that. It's Yeah, I really like Paul it, Newman in it quite a lot. It's their, I think it's safe to say it's their least dark movie. And right? maybe, like as zany as Raising Arizona is, the main characters are kidnappers. And right? maybe that's the missing ingredient. Maybe maybe they needed a little bit of dark to it. Uh, maybe in their effort to make a big popular movie that everyone would like, they, they sort of lost some of the Cohen that made the Coens out well, Cohen. Except according to Matt, there's too much dark in the movie. <laughs> Not enough. We <laughs> don't know. There's one dark too many in this movie. <laughs> 
Um, overall, I guess uh, I'm a fan. Uh, uh, is there anything else you guys want to say about Headsucker? I do, I do like Hudsucker. It is a comedy, yes. <laughs> uh, but it's, yeah, it won't even, it's not uh, high on my list of these six movies. Yeah. But like I said, we're operating in, we're grading between A plus and A minus here for me for all six of these films. Yeah, it's, I, it's, I don't know, it surprises me a little that people didn't like it. Like, I do think it's accessible. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, even without the politics, I thought it was just okay. But I, I would, I'm not like a huge fan of Capra movies. Mm -hmm. But I think it's what I said before about Raising Arizona, too. It could just be a personal bias. Their comedies I never quite like so much. Uh, I think they do crime better. So I, I think it might have worked better, like Miller's Crossing, if there had been a little bit of the darkness to go with the zaniness. Right. See, I think it's not. I don't think it's as accessible as a lot of their movies but I do think it's really friendly right the movie the least tries, violent of their films the movie tries to, tries to welcome you warmly but it doesn't do what Raising Arizona does which is grab you by the ear and yank you into the world and have you immediately liking the characters I, I like Norville but I also feel like I'm supposed to yeah. right because of the Capra-esque sort of golden boy Forrest Gump innocence that he has uh, and that that is kind of a bland character trait, right? Like I'll go there. Norval's a pretty bland character, but these are all character archetypes too, right? He's Mr. Smith goes to Hudsucker. Mr. <laughs> Smith goes to Hudsucker. Oh yeah, looks pretty good. How's Jean? Who's Jean? My wife. <laughs> well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. You were having sex with a little fella then. Yeah. Mind if I sit down? Trying quite a loader. Where's Jerry? Got your damn money. Now where's my daughter? Jeez. Blood has been shit. We now want the entire 80,000. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here. You have no call to get snippled with me. I'm just doing my job here. <gasps> what do you fellas got yourself mixed up in? Police! <laughs> so, is there anything else you can tell me about him? He wasn't circumcised. Oh, yeah? So Fargo is, you know, arguably one of the biggest movies of the 90s. It, certainly in the same conversation with, like, Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption is one of the more memorable, big Oscar bait movies that, that, that we had that decade. I was unfortunately working in Regina the summer that they re-released it. It was released early in the year and then released again later in the year because of its popularity and uh, sort of finessing it for award season. But I had the unlucky thing of seeing Fargo by myself and then not having anybody to talk to <laughs> about it after the movie was over. This <laughs> is like the saddest thing, walking like this good 45-minute walk back to where I was staying, like <laughs> talking to my shadow about what a, what a game-changer of a comic thriller I thought Fargo was. And that... This murder mystery set in Minnesota, of all places, yeah. uh, would be, you know, such an epic contribution to cinema. So, and particularly yeah, for fan. Prairie Kids, because... Oh, sorry, go ahead. So, yeah, I'm saying I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we, I mean, we all grew up in Saskatoon. Like, Fargo could have easily been Saskatoon. Like, it was just so... 
recognizable and right? so Right, I mean, they vivid. shoot the TV show in Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember reading the review in McLean's magazine. It was one of the few times I really jived with the reviewer they had there, who he said, watching Fargo, he had the sinking feeling like the Coen brothers had just made the ultimate Canadian movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, as someone who, you know, has lived much of my life in Saskatchewan, I can say that the most... Uh, boring place I've ever driven through is North Dakota <laughs> and you know it's it's the Coen Brothers movie about the incredibly interesting happenings that might take place in a town you would fucking never stop in right? <laughs> like who stops in Brainerd <laughs> to quote the, the dude yeah sure I'll come by if I'm in the neighborhood and need, need to, use to use the John, the John. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a question about um, because this is going back to the TV show Oh, no, sorry, this is going back to having recently watched the TV show with a friend of mine who is getting irate that it said that it was based off of a true story, particularly in light of some things that we will not discuss that happened in the second season. Um, and I tried to explain that that goes back to Fargo said it was based on a true story. But what? why did they lie about that? Well, uh, I recently talked about this in one of my podcasts, uh, the one previous to this. If you're watching something in a movie that makes you go, what the fuck? This is bullshit. It means one of two things has happened, right? You have an incompetent screenwriter or it's based on a true story. Right. <laughs> uh, and I think that the Coen brothers, uh, other than just being cheeky fucks, because let's be real, they're, they're a couple of cheeky guys, uh, wanted to see if they could get away with more in a way by telling us out the get-go that this was all based on a true story. See, and the first time I watched Fargo was in the theater, and I walked in late because there'd been a line at the snack counter, and I missed that, that card that said that it was based on true events. And I still bought it, right? It <laughs> felt like a story that they'd been, that someone had sat down to write a Life is Stranger Than Fiction story, and it fired on all cylinders and worked. And in spite of the over the top accents, like all of my, my, uh, mother's family are all uh, of Norwegian lineage and they all live in the Twin Cities right they're Marge Gunderson's uh, (laughs) neighbors right and they don't sound quite like that but you know it's a cartoonish version of that and in spite of all of that the movie still feels really real to me and the characters feel really real every single one of them even the most Outlandish, yeah. like the like the one of the two kidnappers who never speaks. Anyway, is do we need to do any kind of plot? Well, I was just going to say um, it's interesting structurally because we start out and uh, it seems to be a story about Steve Buscemi and his silent partner executing uh, this kidnapping and uh, a completely botched roadside stop, but. Uh, the movie kind of keeps shifting our main characters. Like, for a while, Steve Buscemi's our main character, then Jerry Lendegaard's our main character, and then about halfway through the movie, Marge shows up. It's People forget how late into the movie it is when she finally makes her presence known, and it's kind of interesting. And once Marge takes over the story, uh, in a way, it's sort of... Uh, someone Someone who knows the territory is now steering the ship. We have a chance at seeing uh, some of this violence answered. Because it's interesting how this Minnesota nice and the yeah you betcha accents which seem so cartoony are played against really really grisly acts of violence. Yeah. 
um, and and you wouldn't think that the two things would balance well, but they really, really do. Jerry Lundegaard is a is a used car salesman, and uh, he's got a lot of schemes working on the side. And his father in law is just this terrible bastard. None of his schemes work. Uh, and uh, his latest failed scheme involves hiring a couple of goons to uh, kidnap his wife to fake a ransom. Kidnapping stories are going to be coming around a lot in the Coen Brothers movies. You'll find. Um, and basically, uh, after a car stop uh, ends up with a police officer being killed, the kidnappers start demanding more money, and the stakes become real. What was originally just an artificial kidnapping becomes high stakes. And uh, set in the middle of this messy uh, caper, yes, our pregnant police sheriff, uh, Marge, uh, how is she going to get to the bottom of the case, and will she have time? To visit her old high school flame, Mike Yanakita. <laughs> oh, Mike Yanakita! <laughs> Such a weird scene. And maybe, you know, the one speed bump in the movie that I don't understand. I couldn't figure out why that scene that shouldn't be there doesn't take any of the wind out of its sails. It's the same thing with why do we not meet our protagonist until 20 minutes in, but that does, you don't even notice, and then... <laughs> Once you notice that, you notice that there is no protagonist in the whole movie. Like, and maybe it's because, it, like, Fargo is the protagonist. So it's... The vibe is the protagonist. You don't think Marge is the protagonist? You don't think Marge Gunderson is the protagonist? Not really. I don't, even, I don't even think she gets most of the screen time. No, I don't think she does, but she... she I, you know... If, I mean, she's she our heroic figure, She's the anchoring character, and... It, 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 it's difficult to see William H. Macy as the protagonist or as a, as a tragic hero. Uh, Marge... And the, I think the Mike Yanakita scene is what tips the movie's hat that Marge is our protagonist because why else is it there? Marge likes people. Marge wants to like people. Marge wants to see the best in people. Marge really is blindsided when she finds out that Mike is not okay and that this was actually a really sad, sort of creepy encounter. And it's the same thing in Marge that makes her so completely unable to understand the kind of violence that these men perpetrate in the movie. And interestingly, it doesn't make her a worse detective to not be able to understand it. She doesn't need to. What's great about Marge is she doesn't bumble her way to solving things. She figures this shit out. She does a really good job. She follows her procedure. She has a good nervous energy, which I think is sort of the, the constant theme through all of our characters. Steve Buscemi's character is just a tightly wound character and in over his head and kind of knows it. That second that cop's brains land in his lap, he has opened a new fucking door in his life, right? Well, except for that he gets caught because he's bragging about it at the bar about how he <laughs> killed somebody. So, like, he's over his head, but then he forgets. He's like a dog or something. Yeah. And he's, like, barking until you smack him, and then he's quiet for a second, well, and then he starts yapping. Do you, do you remember the dogs on Looney Tunes? There was the big bulldog who walked along and never said anything. The little guy. And then the little chihuahua. Yeah. Come on, Spike, let's have that. That's the, the two hitmen right there. But this, this sort of thread of nervous energy, uh, Jerry Lundergaard, this is the movie that basically introduced the world to uh, um, Bill Macy. Bill, William H. Macy. He'd been doing a lot of TV. You'll see him on early episodes of Law & Order. But this is the thing that, like... Before <laughs> Bill Macy. Big. Before William H. Macy married Felicity Huffman and became uh, 
Jillian Jillian H. Muffman. H. Muffman. That's yes. Um, but he, him too, whenever he's being interviewed by uh, Marge, or even when he's being pressured about the serial numbers over the phone from the other business, because he's, he's stolen a car from his own lot, he just vibrates this terrified energy, but masks it all in that, oh shucks, you know, again, Minnesota nice thing. It's like, they're so close to Canada that some of the Canada friendly has bled into this area of the United <laughs> States. Um, and uh, just how sweet they are. You talked about the heart in Fargo. The relationship between Marge and her husband. Yeah. Oh, hon. It's not that uh, burning passion that you mentioned. The Coen brothers don't do that well. It would be hard to... Imagine Margie and Son of a Gunderson yeah. being passionate, but they I'll, love each I'll other. Get up and make you eggs. Yeah, he gets up and you know Prowler needs to jump, you know, and the fact that they're both really keen on this baby, they they're counting the days until their baby arrives, and how you gotta they, have a breakfast. Gotta have a breakfast, Margie, and I'll make uh, you some eggs. It's just such a sweetness, and again counterbalanced by the Peter Starmari character, who's. You know, until we until we finally get to uh, No Country for Old Men, I don't think they have a more evil character. <laughs> oh, I felt so bad when he killed Steve Buscemi with the axe. Just that look on Steve Buscemi's face, where he's like, "I, I had no fucking idea until that axe was coming down on my head." Just how fucking crazy this guy was. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't feel very badly for Steve Buscemi in that moment. I mean. <laughs> All through the movie, basically, whenever terrible stuff happens to him, I just have to kind of chuckle about it. Right, starting from the getting from the terrible beating Shep Proudfoot gives him uh, and flings him across the room, and then whips him with his own belt and makes him squeal like a little like a little pig. Yeah, he, that that character soaks up a lot of shit, and I think he deserves all of it. But I don't want to open the can of worms into this whole racial stereotyping thing either <laughs> again, but. Both Mike Yanagida and that uh, native Shep character, Bradfoot. if you were to like close your eye, if you're a white Hollywood executive and close your eyes and imagine <laughs> the most stereotypical accent or interpretation of those characters, that might well be what we would come up with. No, Mike's got a, a heavy Minnesotan accent. Oh yeah, that's true, you bet. He, he sure does. Oh yeah. He's just more of a crazy so stalker. But the argument could be made that by playing so strongly against the stereotype, they're actually empowering the stereotype. <laughs> Are they being honest? Um, Are they being... I, just, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's it's. I, they present. just don't write... They just write well. Uh, they write white people well. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what I would say about them in general. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, again, I don't want to turn this into a House of Proxy uh, review again. Um, every... Every sort of scene as the stakes pile up and pile up, especially in the Jerry Lundergaard system, I think that the, Frances McDormand does the best job of containing it. You'd think because she's, you know, not as physically powerful and because she's pregnant, she might feel more vulnerable, but she remains largely fearless. But it's, it's interesting to me to see Jerry, Jerry Lundergaard, you know, having these conversations with his son. His son is telling him the phone messages that he got, right? Uh, someone from work called about the serial numbers on the cars that he's stolen, and the kidnappers have called with the you know to raise a <laughs> ransom on this fake kidnapping that he's arranged. He, and, and, and like he is such a terribly selfish, cowardly, pathetic man, 
<laughs> that he does not consider how arranging the kidnapping of his wife will affect their son. Yeah, until that hits after him. it's fucking done. Oh yeah, Scotty. And, yeah. Oh yeah, Scotty. <laughs> and so, like, I feel nothing when bad things happen to him, other than like good he got his comeuppance <laughs> and I think that's really interesting that Marge the, the pregnant female sheriff I'd never feel like she's in any great danger even in the tense ending when she comes around the corner and finds the wood chipper scene yeah right Marge is always in control of what's happening around Marge even when she's sort of flipping out right like he's fleeing the interview he's fleeing the interview yeah and she's not she still makes the right decisions and gets the fucking that's job the done. least composed we see her and yes. it's just like basically a brief system reboot that happens the rest right? of the time she's pregnant Columbo she's yeah. awesome and yeah. and Frances McDormand hits that character out of the park I mean I said earlier I have a huge crush on on her and a, like a talent crush and just a you know sweetness crush she's awesome but she Frances McDormand as Marge Gunderson is about as as uh, juicy a role as an actress could ask for. I think she's just yeah. it's got everything. Although the movie fails the whatchamacallit test, doesn't it? Beck, the Beck I think the Beck a hundred percent of Coen Brothers movies fail the Bechdel <laughs> test. I can't. I, they, she does have a Holly Hunter, conversation. Holly about, Hunter like, and uh, and uh, Frances McDormand have a conversation about about uh, the kids getting their diphtheria tetanus boosters right. and stuff. <laughs> they, okay. they don't um, discuss yeah, any there you, there you go. I've heard a lot of... Uh, there are people who are not fans of Fargo, believe it or not. We sound like we're all fans of Fargo, but a lot I of people... A lot of people are off-put by the level of ugliness to it. And it's sort of like they feel like it spoils the meal of the comedy. Uh, and uh, I heard a, the most compelling argument. I don't agree with it, but one of the most compelling arguments I've heard is Jerry Lundegaard's wife. In, in a world of full of cartoon characters, she seems like the most cartoon character. She almost seems to only be able to communicate by sound. <laughs> like, um, and uh, she's got this really strange vibe to her. Um, and there's something about the way her death is handled. It's an off-screen death. And uh, basically, Skumar says uh, she was whining or something. It was basically he was annoyed with her, so he killed her. And... How that death is treated, I think it's supposed to be a reflection of the Peter Stamar character, right? Uh, nothing in the real world affects him. The only time we see him show emotion is when he's watching that fucking soap opera. And the character in the soap opera confesses to being pregnant. And his mind is just for a second blown. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, this woman that he's killed for no reason is laying callously on the floor. Is that funny? Should we laugh at that, right? I didn't think it was all that, like, not funny, but great. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just so Fargo, right? It's, right. I, I really like how dark and light it is simultaneously. They do such a, it's like Miller's Crossing. They do a wonderful job of balancing tones. Mm -hmm. Well, it says a lot about the impact of Fargo for you to be able to say, that is so Fargo. And for that to really <laughs> actually sense. mean something as far as uh, cinema analysis goes. I, uh... I think that maybe the reason the wife has such a strange nervous energy to her is that she, like, the bags under her eyes, the nervous energy with which she stirs and cooks everything and talks to Scotty about it, hockey, yeah. and his grades. She's, 
like a verbally abused wife. She walks on eggshells. Imagine what Jerry Lundergaard is like when her husband is awful. Her father is awful. Yeah, she's not a woman who's in a good place, and which might actually make her father a good character because we don't know what because it seems like he's really really mean to Jerry, but maybe he knows something about Jerry that the audience only gets a hint at. Maybe he's actually just a good father. I don't know. He's arrogant to the point of his own doom. Like, it doesn't seem like he understands the life and death stakes until he's got a bullet in him. And he's like, oh, shit, you really meant to kill me. (laughs) Like, (laughs) there was no scenario in which money wouldn't solve all of these problems for him. Yeah. There were little moments in the movie that are there. There's a moment that's there to make us question his, question the father's, moral fiber whatever you want to call it where he hesitates to put up the million dollars or whatever it is mm-hmm. for the ransom and we're supposed to think like ah oh, he's not a loving father it's a million fucking dollars and you're going to give it to a stranger in a parking lot and hope that he brings you your daughter alive mm-hmm. like i don't know uh, the choices I don't think we're that characters have any sympathy with that character. no we're not but the choices where we see these people have to face are ones that it's it's told so starkly and it feels so real down to things like him having to scrape the ice off of his Love windshield it. before he can drive anywhere are things that and make that it crane shot is from is that scene is also just gorgeous gorgeous <laughs> with the tire <laughs> tracks leading in uh and then he's just stranded in a sea of snow uh so many characters in that movie feel so lost and they feel lost in a really real heartless scary world that the Coen brothers, even in their serious films, don't often populate. I think No Country for Old Men happens in that world. I think... Which, by the way, is... I'm going to return to... I could give Margie a nominal protagonist. I think that bleak world is the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she's like a protagonist. I think that's why Fargo... I think that's why Fargo works as a TV show, despite what we would have thought, because we don't need Marge. We don't need, like, we don't need a lot from the original movie. We just need that vibe. We need that world. Yeah, well, I think Marge is the salt of the earth, right? She's what makes a a way station like Brainerd into a place, you know, like she, she is the type of person that makes up for people like Peter Stramar how do you say his name? Stramar Peter Stramar and Steve Buscemi's characters uh, she can't process how they why they think the way they do why they behave the way they do but just by living the way she does she somehow makes up for those people well there's another thing too uh, which is just building on that which just occurred to me but one of the the things that I thought the things that really works about that uh, I mean it's all the disjunctive tone but there's that Minnesotan politeness but underneath the politeness is all of this violence and ugliness but she's the only one that under her politeness is like her and her husband basically under their politeness they're just nice Mm -hmm. but otherwise the nice characters are always so at, at best sleazy and at worst homicidal disingenuous the, yeah. her her deputy is a really nice okay. guy uh, like, oh, you get my point for the most part for the most part i i agree with you i think i heard it well described as it's sort of fargo's pitting the best of america versus the worst of america 
and both sides of that coin is sort of depicted uh, for every bit of their absurdity. <laughs> like, the, the bad people are kind of weird and fucked up, but the good people are also kind of weird and fucked up, but they're earnestly good, and they mean well, and they're... It, it's, it's becoming a rarer thing in this Game of Thrones days that we're in to find a protagonist that you just love and cheer for, and that's that's smart you know yeah. like <laughs> well and i'll give you that she's not she's certainly not the central character she's i guess if i'm honest as much of a protagonist to that movie as tommy lee jones is to no country for old men right. and he's not really the protagonist he's simply the character looking upon this mayhem and and trying to reckon with it like trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense to him yeah. In a way, uh, we, you say it's about the world, but I mean, the, the movie, if it, if it is about one character, I guess I would say it's Marge. And that's the interesting thing about No Country for Old Men. Even though we spend the least amount of time with Tommy Lee Jones, the movie's kind of about Tommy Lee Jones. Well, he's the one sure. left to reflect on. He's the only person alive at the end of the, the <laughs> to, ordeal, to, to right? Kind of, yeah. And the but same see, I, I would also Marge. say... Oh, sorry. I, I was done. It's all good. <laughs> the same could be said of Marge, is what he was saying, as far as, you know, the way she comes out the other side of it and, and just the, taking personal lessons from the experience she's She's the one left behind in the aftermath. Nobody else is left behind to, to try and make sense of the senselessness. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, so my other favorite Coen Brothers movie, which I think I've already mentioned, uh, one of my favorite movies is No Country for Old Men. But I think in some weird ways it's a, it's like a companion piece to it fargo is. it's just with the, the <laughs> cuteness they're they're both essentially nihilistic pieces so even marge in bed with her husband at the end which is kind of a sweet ending yeah. it's not like she's just basically wrapping herself up in her house choosing to ignore the fact that the world is this nihilistic and like in the same way that tommy lee jones talks about it a lot in a way that doesn't make sense and it cuts to black is she but ignoring neither... it or is she wrapping herself up in her husband and her family and her domestic life and making the world something other than nihilistic by being marge gunderson and by coming home and being happy with her husband right like if it weren't for people like her if everyone was like like uh, the you know arguably the other person that the movie is about Jerry Lundergaard, Jerry Lundergaard uh, just pure selfishness then it, the world is a pretty terrible place yeah that's a better reading that's where the world needs more Paxton's and fewer mats <laughs> didn't even occur to me that, that but that makes perfect sense also that she's pregnant so we've got the whole rebirth thing yeah I think you're right I still see it as but there is she's pregnant with a black baby that's the one black character <laughs> that they gotta sneak a black a ma magic black character in somewhere um, I'm a big fan of Fargo I mean uh, it won Coen Brothers their uh, Oscar for original screenplay and uh, Frances McDormand for uh, Marge, supporting actress. And uh, they were already on the map. I think they were already the Coen Brothers. But this, I think, solidified them, you know. I had and I not think it's seen... where they became, like, serious filmmakers. Because before they, like, made quirky movies, but this is where yeah. they're filmmakers. I uh, feel like Miller's Crossing was maybe their first... Uh, step toward that in Fargo is when they really hit their stride uh, as far as making that type of film uh, it's definitely very high on my list of Coen Brothers movies overall I, I think Fargo has really has something special 
And I found it very interesting watching it this time. I don't think I'd screened a movie since before having uh, watched. And then I loved it so much going and reading uh, No Country for Old Men. And watching Fargo since then, it was really interesting to see how much the... Even though they didn't write No Country for Old Men, it echoes Fargo so strongly. Mm -hmm. Love it. Love it. I'm looking forward to talking about that one in a couple of episodes. (laughs) Well, for now, I th- unless there's anything else you want to say about Fargo, I'm going to wrap up our reviews here. Shit, that was I the last one. I feel like one. we've, uh, I think we've said a lot. Yeah. Um, please. I mean, I doubt this, this is touching anyone's ears who haven't seen Fargo. If you've seen one Coen Brothers movie, I, I have to think it's Fargo. And there's probably a reason. Thank you so much for being a part of Rank and Review. Just generally speaking, thank you both for participating in Rank and Review. But here's episode 100, so that's kind of a special thing. And, and 101. Uh, thank right? you for giving us 100 free episodes of pure delight. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I there think... was one I fucking hated. Right. I won't tell you which. That's okay. I'll just the live Star with Trek it. one. I'll live with it. It's the one where Matt won. <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to keep on tracking, but I am going to make this announcement uh, on this podcast that um, Ranking Review is going to be taking the rest of the summer of 2017 off. We'll be back with new episodes in September 2017. Uh, and uh, if, I, if, if I can get my poop in a group, maybe I'll drop a clip show or a special episode sometime this summer. But, uh, or a sex tape. Or a sex tape, because I hear that's really good for your career. But, oh, uh, do you have a P-tape? <laughs> I really need to get that P-tape shot. Get some R. Kelly tape. But what we have to do now is, is difficult. Uh, Paxton's going to start. We're going to rank the first six movies made by the Brothers Cohen from our least favorite to our most. This is Kill hard. your children, this, guys. This, this is hard. This is like picking my favorite children. I don't have any children, so I have no idea. I imagine picking your children is almost this hard. Almost. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I have to speak this aloud and make it official. It'll be real. It'll be real, it'll yeah. be done, and that'll feel good. But, uh, here here we go. I start at the bottom, right? Yeah, least, at least a favorite. Alright, well, in number six place for me, and I... As I mentioned, Larry, I don't remember if I said this to you or not, Matt. I probably struggled most with the bottom two movies on the list. I did say this. We talked about this. Uh, Number six is Barton Fink for me. Uh, The movie is either impenetrable or over my head. I hope it's over my head and I get it someday. Maybe on my deathbed. Or maybe when they release Old Fink... Uh, if they ever get old Fink made their their already written sequel, they're just waiting for John Turturro to age. Believe it when you see it. <laughs> I will believe it when I see it. But there's a Lebowski spinoff in the can, and uh, so I'll believe anything, I guess. Uh, 
Barton Fink is, as we've said too many times already, I, I do appreciate the movie. I like all of these movies, but it comes in in last place. Number five goes to The Hudsucker Proxy, a movie that is, uh, as I said, took a step down in my esteem upon this viewing, even though it was really pretty to look at. All of these films, few of them I'd seen in, in HD. I saw Fargo in the theater, uh, and that was, I think, maybe the first Coen Brothers film I saw in the theater might have been Fargo. So the rest of these, uh, many of them I'd not seen in HD before. Hudsucker Proxy is beautiful. Uh, I, I find it highly quotable. I couldn't tell you, like, how many times do you or Gareth or myself <laughs> say, sure, 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 and reply to something, and it, it's all Hudsucker. It's, it's near and dear to my heart, but as far as Coen Brothers movies go, it has problems for me, uh, one of them being that it's too magical by half. The ability for a character to stop time by shoving false teeth into the clock's gears is asking a lot of an audience and depending on your mood it can be the kind of thing that makes you go really have I been waiting through this whole movie for that to be how it ends that he freezes time and and the big Lebowski shows up in an angel costume <laughs> on other days I find it delightful uh, in fourth place uh, Blood Simple is a solid fucking movie I love Blood Simple I appreciated it maybe more than uh, than I would have last time and uh, I found it fascinating to see and I will be watching more carefully for them next time I view Blood Simple whenever that is for more uh, flavor previews of things that we would see in later Cohen movies uh, all the way up to you know another movie that we were just talking off mic about how Fargo and No Country for Old Men feel like they're set in the same universe maybe that was on mic I don't even remember uh, Blood Simple for me feels like it fits into that universe as well and it, it, the things they establish in that movie are still present in their, in their current films uh, Blood Simple does what it does about as perfectly as, a, as a, just a stone cold murder thriller with no frills can do what it does uh, in third place Raising Arizona is one of my favorite comedies, maybe I could go so far as to say. It's my second favorite Coen Brothers comedy, I would say, overall. And I don't struggle with Coen Brothers comedies quite to the extent Matt does. They are a little bit zany for some people's tastes, but I love them. I mean, I'm a They Might Be Giants fan, I can do with zany. In second place, even though it's the movie that made the Coen brothers hit their stride as the three of us I think agreed Fargo comes in in second place for me and that is only because Miller's Crossing uh, is you know it, it's perfect <laughs> it's, per it's, it's pretty perfect. damn fucking good <laughs> it's perfect you know sometimes you see something whether it's a uh, uh, piece of food that you really want to eat or a sunset or a beautiful girl or Miller's Crossing and you just go oh that's so perfect I feel like Miller's Crossing is one of those movies that a lot of people love but no one loves it as much as I do <laughs> well, well Paxton might, Paxton I, might. I, I might we'll see 
Oh, great. That's a pretty solid list. Uh, I'm going to say nothing. I'm going to let Matthew get his list in before uh, I, I say any more. So. I always stammer through my list a little bit. I feel like I, I should say a little something about each movie, and it's all just repetitive. Next time, I'm just going to robotically read the list. <laughs> you well, you. Paxton, we didn't go six for six, and we didn't quite go zero for six, but close. Um, <laughs> close okay, to at it. the bottom... I put Blood Simple, which has true moments of brilliance. Um, you can just tell that the recent film school journeyman filmmakers that were making this had great things ahead of them. Um, but I just found it to, it had all of the pieces in order, but like I said, it was missing the heart a little bit. And, and because of that, I found it a little bit boring because I found these characters weren't, weren't engaging good or bad. Um, next, and I'm not going to go over reasons for this again, but Hudsucker Proxy. Third, or I third, sure do wish you liked that movie more. <laughs> <laughs> um, next, I've got Raising Arizona. We're we're getting into kind of flawless territory here, yeah. so the rest of this this gets a little bit messy. But like I said, Raising Arizona, I would say is almost a flawless movie, but it's a farce and I don't really like farces and temperamentally I just cannot um, fully engage with characters that want to have babies because of how much I don't like babies or scenes <laughs> that babies are in so uh, but that's not a weakness that's a weakness for me not the movie um, so anyway uh, Raising Arizona makes the top of the bottom three Next, I've got Miller's Crossing, which would easily crest any list except for this one. Um, wow. I Again, flawless movie. It's great. Uh, nothing bad to say about it. Except for that I thought Barton Fink was a little bit more original and a little bit more brilliant, uh, which we've been over how I, this may be the minority apparent, uh, opinion. And then finally at the top, I've got Fargo, which I think is more or less a flawless movie. Yeah. Um, even if it doesn't get number one on your guys' list, um, it's really, really good. It's a I think very it, fucking good movie. I think it might be a better made film than Miller's Crossing in most ways, but there's something too near and dear to my heart. There might be a certain nostalgia factor to Miller's Crossing, even though I think if I went back in time, I might find that I saw Fargo first. I seem to remember watching Miller's Crossing on video uh, around the time Goodfellas was out on video, so that probably yeah. would have predated be, the release that's, that's of Fargo. Well before Fargo, yeah. By a couple of movies, yeah. Well, gentlemen, I called it. Nobody matched. We didn't go zero for six. We didn't go for six for six, but nobody's list matches anybody's list. I kind of had this feeling like it would happen. Yeah. Before I go through this, I just want to reiterate the fact that I fucking love all of these movies. I am such a ridiculous, like, Coen Brothers fanboy that, like, this is, this is, you know, picking your favorite kids. I do want to do a sequel to this episode and eventually work our way through all the Coen Brothers movies and once we've done them all, put ourselves through the Herculean task Can of I trying to rank the entire catalog. Can which, I ask you a question? Well, here? so your 200th episode, we'll do the next six Coen Brothers movies. <laughs> get, get to work, Larry. Get to work. Can I Are ask we, you a question? What's that? Because I've been suspecting this. 
it was it HUD? Is HUD where our lists diverge? Is that the only place? I'm I've got a funny feeling. I guess so. I guess so. Um, HUD is it, isn't it? <laughs> is it HUD and Barton Fink that are switched, or is it HUD and Blood Simple? At the bottom of my list, and I love all six of these movies. I put Barton Fink. I did. I'm surprised that that, that it topped your list. I thought that you would it's like Blood it. Blood Simple and HUD. It's got to be. Sorry. I definitely thought like that you, you you would like it more than I do, but I'm surprised that it tops the list, and uh, I feel kind of bad like I'm throwing it under the bus somehow, putting it at the bottom. But I found Barton the most difficult protagonist that we've had to deal with, and uh, there's part of me that that still screams, "What's in the box?" <laughs> I know I'm just supposed to embrace the mystery, but. <laughs> I didn't. And it's at the bottom because something had to be at the bottom. Yes. (laughs) I concur. uh, In fifth place, I put the impressive debut of Blood Simple. Uh, And I do think it's an impressive debut, but uh, I mean, as much as there's a lot of, you know, stuff that we will see throughout the entire career of the Coen brothers, you can tell that they're, they're a little bit reserved. They're either hindered a little bit by their budget or by their experience. Um, It's hard to poke too many holes in the movie but uh for me it washed up in fifth place i'm a fan all the way in fourth place i put the hudsucker proxy um i i it's got an aw shucks positive quality that is such a rare commodity <laughs> you know i guess um, larry's the happiest one of the yeah three how <laughs> strange that i would be the weird optimist of this group here but um uh, like I say, I appreciate a movie that just wants to put a smile on your face and keep it there. And um, I, 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 in a way, part of its strength to me is that it, it's it's really not about anything more than a goofy guy who ends up inventing the hula hoop. <laughs> you know, like, there's no extra layer. There's no, weirdly, there's nothing really particularly deep about Hudsucker. It's just pure whimsy on film. And that makes it hard to hate for me. Oh, there we are. This was the toughest part of the whole list, actually, for me. I almost made Raising Arizona go all the way to second place. Mm. I really, really do enjoy Raising Arizona. Like, it's got, it's got to be up there on the movies that I've seen the most. There's just so many great uh, set pieces. We didn't talk about the fist fight in the trailer enough in the review. John Goodman mm. and, and Nicolas Cage just fighting in that trailer. Everything is so brilliantly realized, but... I'm going to put it in third place because Fargo is a game-changing movie. Not just for the Coen brothers, but I think for, like, that kind of movie. It's just, it's influential. It's a huge thing. So we have to kind of give its due props. And um, there's a lot of movies that emulate Fargo that want to try and catch this wave, but there will only ever be one Fargo. And uh, it makes its way to second place. But number one absolutely for me is Miller's Crossing I just I cannot believe the quality of that screenplay the, the, the cast though everybody seems perfect everybody seems perfect in that movie um, the, how it's really really narratively complex but even if you don't catch anything you believe that you're not being lied to that no shortcuts are being taken uh, for me it, it, it'll always be one of if not my very favorite gangster movie quote unquote ever and it might well be my favorite Coen Brothers movie, but 
The Big Lebowski exists, and No Country for Old Men exists. That's, this <laughs> so, list is going to only get harder, my friends. It, it gets Sorry, difficult. I can't uh, believe Larry, how close... Can I interject for a second? Yes. We went zero for six. Did we? Yeah. Yeah, which one did you think we matched up on? Did, uh, did we... In, was, I thought Blood Simple was this one. No? Have we gone I zero for... I Blood Simple last. Well, congratulations, Matthew. You're a not winner. Zero for six on the Coens, and we went five for six or four for six, I guess. But we only swapped those two. So right? now it was I'm, blood simple I'm in a rare group that's gone. Uh, that's been a champion and been the booby champion. <laughs> you won and lost. Congratulations. I don't know. We need to find a proper title for this. Somebody write rank and review at gmail.com and tell me what I we should call I just this award. Booby champion. Booby champ. Current booby champion, well, I Matthew Risley. I can't say that I almost won because I didn't struggle with whether or not to put Blood Simple above HUD or not. My, right. my struggle was with whether to put HUD above Barton Fink or not. Right. Uh, but, yeah, too bad because it would have been nice to win the belt back while <laughs> simultaneously watching Matt eat a booby prize. Hell, in the end, aren't we all kind of winners and losers? I think we are, except yeah. Matt gets boobies. Uh, thank well, you. Larry, congratulations one more time before we sign off. This has been a tremendous achievement. <laughs> 100 uh, episodes. Every one of your episodes, and I really love them all, uh, particularly the Matt Risling episodes. Yeah, those are pretty strong. Hey? All right. <laughs> yeah, he sometimes has interesting things to say, although he has no idea what he's talking about when it comes to the Cobros, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> How did you end up on this panel, you... Well, please you, keep spreading you. the word to the good people in Toronto, and uh, yeah, I'm taking a few months off, but I've released a, an episode every two weeks. You've been bloody <laughs> for, clockwork. For a straight 100 episodes, so I figure I can put my feet up, and um, there will be more announcements uh, to come in the in, in the fall i guess yeah what are you gonna do with your summer like make a movie or something <laughs> maybe <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right adios you guys. guys see you in 101 scrappy with my friends there didn't I I feel passionately about the Coen brothers and generally speaking I just I love movies and uh, I guess that's what this podcast has all been about and will continue to be about when I started up again in September of 2017 I'm going to take a couple months off I'm going to put my feet up and I'm going to try and uh, come back prepared and refreshed to keep bringing you some great free podcasts My name is Larry Parsons. I'm your host and Random Canadian. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. Please tell your friends about it. Please spread the word in any way you can. I appreciate you being out there.